Same one. The viciously hot West Texas flatland feature small, struggling town, stuck in time, scattered across hundreds of miles of sun-baked landscape that is emblematic of the lives that are lived here. Hard, unforgiving, unrelenting, with no respite from the heat. Scene two. I'm not going to read the super. Scene two. Fuck the super. (laughs) Juniper, Texas. Elgin's Grill. Day. Main Street battles the elements in its own daily grind. On a tired corner, Elgin's Grill hangs by a thread. Scene three. Internal. Elgin's Grill. Day. Maybe it's been here 40 years. Swiveling stools at the counter. Pie under glass. Jukeboxes in the booths. Everything's worn out. Country music plays. A half a dozen customers drink black coffee, eat late lunches. Corey fries burgers at the grill. Even with the sweat, you're doing the action here. Okay. Wow. Even with the Dennis sweat and grease on his face. And Dennis Quaid. You should have been there. <laughs> and his fate and the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's cowboy handsome. You are cowboy handsome. Uh, with a devastating <laughs> to a cow, he's <laughs> and intense eyes. There is something charismatic about him. Of course. Even here. Even now. Even slugging. He's working hard back there, cooking, prepping, cleaning, pushing through the high heat and smoke from the grill. He puts a plate together, turns, and serves a regular at the counter, a rancher, John. Here you go, John. I put some extra fries on there. Don't tell Elgin. He says it loud enough for Elgin, the owner, hands in the open register at the end of the counter to catch on. Everyone hears it, smiles. It's a running gag, and they like it. They like Corey. He's easy with people, good-natured and high-spirited, and with just the right amount of West Texas uh, wise-ass mixed in. Corey smiles at Elgin, who nods that he gets it too. But Elgin's sense of humor is suspended today, maybe for longer than just today. So Corey can have a dialect too, huh? Yeah. In fact, I forgot uh, about that. I should have put that in there, you know. <laughs> well, it's West Texas, 1970. West Texas, 19 and 70. Uh, did you I give you Elgin? Well. Uh, yeah, I think you gave it to him. Yeah, you're going to read Elgin. Just so that you know, ahead of time. I don't understand dialect very much. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> don't worry Just make something up there, buddy. <laughs> that was good. Sometimes if you do it too much, it becomes overbearing oh, really? and you don't really listen to the words. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. Especially if they all do British accents. Yeah. It takes over, British. people walk out, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can tell you a story about this. Go ahead. Can, can we, should we interject this? Yeah. Yes. There, there, was a, there was a play written, oh, I'm going to guess 2005, 2006. It's called W. W, yeah. Do you, do you know that play? That. Yeah. Sounds like your kind of play there, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was a story of George W.'s and um, oh, I can't remember the, the Prime Minister now from the UK. Uh, Mark Blair. Thatcher Blair. Blair. Okay. Tony Blair. It was a play about their relationship. And Kitty and I saw, because we wanted to see it so bad, because mm. we're such W fans. <laughs> um, that was a joke. Uh, but, but anyway, we wanted to see it so bad, and it was playing in the West End in London. And I would say the audience was 70% British and 30% American. Mm-hmm. 
And the jokes, it was so funny to tell what was an inside American joke and an inside British joke. (laughs) Because when the inside British jokes come up, they howled with laughter, and we were going, what? What was funny about that? And then when the inside W jokes would come up, whether it was Barbara Bush or whatever, or his dog, I forget his dog's name now, Uh, and it was like we would laugh and howl with laughter, and they would be going, what are they laughing about? It was a funny play in the fact that it was... So diverse, yeah. and, and then you saw it in London. I saw it in London. Yeah, well, I mean that's in the U.S. Yeah. If I'd have seen it in the U.S., yeah. it'd have been almost one hundred percent American. That's so. you're hitting on my favorite thing again. It's like, what time is it? Is, it funny? <laughs> is this funny or not? Well, the answer is, what time is it? Where am I? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. That's great. Well, think about how yeah. many things don't age well in film. Right. Well, you know, some yeah. films that you look at now, whether it be Hitchcock or whomever, or Orson Welles, and you go, they just didn't age well. It's become trite. Yes. Yeah. Some things become trite. We just watched the man in the white suit with alec guinness the other night and that was a great film and it made a lot of wonderful uh, social comments about about uh, capitalism and labor and all those things together it was well done it was beautifully shot it was amazing you know we were, yeah. we were impressed <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> scene four yeah <laughs> Corey is still at the grill uh internal elgin's grill day empty now sadly so Elgin and Corey sit at a back booth. A photo of President Dick Nixon hangs on the wall beside the jukebox. A photo of Johnny Cash hangs on the other side. Did I miss anything about Elgin? Do we know anything else about him? I'm just going going you, after him. You, you own this grill, and you're gonna. Oh, no, I understand what I'm about to do, right? Yeah, yeah right, you're, right. you're gonna fire him. Cool, right? And you don't want to fire him, but yeah, okay. you gotta fire him. Right. And, and, no, and, and the lines, right. the lines say it for yourself. Okay, yeah. please, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, Corey. Ain't nothing personal. I want you to know that. You've been a good cook. Mm. But last one hired, first one fired. Mm. That's all the world works. He means it. Nothing personal. He likes Corey same as everyone else. But life is life. Corey takes it that way. Still, it hurts. He needs the money. Can you give me two more weeks, Elgin? I can't even give you two days. External. Elgin's Grill Day. Corey exits the diner into the afternoon heat. He wears faded blue sheen, blue sheens, Charlie Sheens, and a, a sleeveless T-shirt that shows he's a working man, fit, wiry, hard. He That's me. A, <laughs> I was just going to say, boy, did I typecast oh, this. Well, you know, fit, uh, well, wiry, he puts a baseball cap on his head, takes a disappointed breath that he can't shake, and walks down Main Street. External, scene six, external Salvation Army thrift store, clothing, kitchen gear, bedding, etc. Scene seven, internal Salvation Army thrift store. Corey carries a pair, who wants to read Dorothy? I'll do it. Dylan, thank you. <laughs> um, you look more female than all we're, of us. We're, 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 <laughs> all we're, we're not right. sexist or anything, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, internal Salvation Army Thrift Store. <clears throat> Corey carries a pair of used but serviceable Converse sneakers to the counter. Too small for him. They're clearly for someone else. The elderly lady at the register, Dorothy Smiles, checks the price. Well, now let's see. That'll be... $1.35. He holds her eyes for a moment, then digs into his pocket, pulls out change, counts it in his hand, puts it on the counter. Dorothy adds it up, coin by coin. It's $1.35. They share a look. Times are tough in West Texas, and she scoops up the money. 
Uh, you're Stephen. Uh, why don't you read Jim? Sure. Okay. Um, scene eight, Juniper Middle School. The small middle school melts in the sun. The sign board out front says, have a nice summer, see you in September. Kids and grown-ups grateful to close shop as the heat swallows everything, take off for vacation. Stephen, 12, Corey's son, blessed with the rugged good looks of his father, walks his bike besides a buddy, Jim. You going anywhere? No place special. Probably hang around with my dad, play baseball. Maybe go to Houston and see a game. That's about it. They come to the road. Stephen climbs on his bike. It's old and used up. I'm going to Galveston with my mom. Stephen nods. But something about Jim going away with his mother makes him pause for a hard second. Yeah, that's good. Well, I guess I'll see you. Hey, Stephen. Have a good summer. Stephen waves without turning around. It looks like he has to ride 100 miles to get home. C9, uh, <clears throat> trailer park. Disparate trailers decaying in the sun, some with canvas-covered patios, shading beat-up barnwood picnic tables and mismatched dime store lawn chairs are set around a dirt yard dotted with dying flower beds and busted fountains. I like the way you didn't use commas between all those things, like they were all piled together. (laughs) (laughs) Corey pulls his 62 Chevy half-ton into the park and rolls it up to a particularly wasted trailer. The Chevy has salt rods so bad you can read through it. (laughs) Steven's bike is on the ground near the door. Corey parks the truck, climbs out, and heads to the trailer. He carries a plain brown paper bag up to the picnic table under the canvas. Overhang, set two baseball clubs. He sees them, stops, and smiles. He walks to the table, sets, lifts one of the gloves. Steven is written on the inside. There is a ball in it. He pounds the ball into the glove once, twice again. Some of the leather stitching is looser than he likes it. He puts the ball down and works on the glove. His hands are strong and sure. His eyes focused. His shoulders relaxed. Even his in, in this decomposing trailer park, in the shadow of his lost job at Elgin's, working on Stephen's glove is for this quiet moment all that matters. Hey, Dad. Stephen stands in the trailer, just the screen door between him and the ro- world. Corey looks up and smiles. Did you leave these out here? Go ahead, Stephen. I was waiting for you. Then I got hot. Uh, what are you doing? Pocket was a little loose. Go on. Uh, last day of school. Last, last day of school? Last day. Anybody give you anything? No. Well, then it's up to me. Happy birthday, son. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. Uh, Want to try them out? Uh, how, do they, uh, how do they feel? Okay, cut. Uh, should I... Should I read some of this action? Do I you want so, that yeah. put in there? Yeah, I think so. Because it's hard for, it'd be hard for them to know what's going on. Because you kinda, yeah, we found that you have to kind of slalom between it. Sometimes you don't. But like when he yeah. gives them the, the, the bag and he opens Yeah, I was it thinking yeah. some of these actions are really kind of necessary yeah. to visualize it. Yeah, because there's no, there's no visual for them. Right, like yeah. we don't know what he gave them. Yeah. Right. Let's go back to... Uh, uh, are you the fucking director on this now? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just take over? You to that role. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move the lights over here. Chase is on the lunch. Look, this whole baseball glove thing is just bullshit. Let's bring it about a pogo stick. Yeah, they love hockey in West Texas, don't they? I'd like to bring in my version. I rewrote this. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, well, let's just go back to the middle of page four where it says, Hey, Dad. Okay. Mm, hey, yeah. Dad. 
Steven stands in the trailer, just the screen door between him and the world. Corey looks up and smiles. Did you leave these out here? Steven nods, exits the trailer, moves to the table. I was waiting for you. Then I got hot. Well, what are you doing? Pocket was a little loose. He ties the last knot, then looks at Steven. They hold each other's eyes. An entire conversation passes between them in that moment. Unspoken words that define an unbreakable bond. Last day of school? Last day. Anybody give you anything? No. Well, then it's up to me. He gestures at the brown paper bag on the table. Stephen smiles, takes the bag, removes the Salvation Army converse, and his face lights up. Happy birthday, son. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. Corey puts Stephen's glove on the table, lifts his glove, pounds the ball into it, and looks at the converse. Want to try them out? They share a great smile, and Stephen puts the birthday sneakers on. Corey stands, moved out of the shade. Stephen grabs his glove, runs about 60 feet down the dirt. They throw and catch in familiar fashion. They've only done this a million times together. How do they feel? Good. Really good. Corey smiles. Gets down in a catcher's crouch. Stephen goes into his windup, whips it in for a strike. Did you get the mail? Bills I can't pay. Mom sent me a card? It's a hard question for Corey. Uh, no. And a hard answer for Stephen, who fights off disappointment, keeps throwing and catching. And I don't want to talk about that. I know. I, I just thought four years, maybe that was enough time. Corey doesn't answer, just stands and holds the ball, a gesture that says loud and clear, no more. Stephen gets the message. Corey nods and they throw it back and forth, letting those last words burn away in the heat. Scene 10, trailer, main room. As seedy inside as out, but lived in at the same time. What few things they own make it as much a home as it can be. Stephen sits at the dining room table, reading a newspaper, sports section, checking the box scores, drinking a can of soda. I don't think it's that bad. Corey cooks dinner in the cramped kitchen. He empties a half bottle of ketchup into a small pot, fills the rest of the pot with water, stirs it, heats it at a low flame ketchup soup. He's got two white bread grilled cheese sandwiches frying in a pan on the other burner. You just got a pair of Salvation Army sneakers for your 12th birthday. You don't think that's bad? You'll get another job. For minimum wage. I can't even pay the rent on this trailer at that rate. There's no decent work here. Anywhere. None. Corey puts the sandwiches on the table, goes back to the stove, pours two bowls of the soup, puts them on the table too. He opens the small fridge, grabs himself a can of cheap beer, and pops it open. I'm sick of being poor. We're not poor. We've got money. Not really. Didn't Elgin pay you? Back rent on the trailer. Gone before it was in my pocket. We got 50 bucks between us and flat broke. Corey sets. Eats with his son. You always say that. Mm. Corey nods, but his face is down. His eyes are sad in a way Stephen has never seen before. This time, it's true. They eat for a moment, Stephen thinking, watching his father. Then, I can work. Corey looks at his son. What can you do? Pitch. Corey smiles. For who? Astros. I'm better than Blazing Game. Corey laughs. Blazing Game. game. (laughs) Corey laughs. Stephen laughs too, happy and relieved to cheer up his dad. You're not worse, that's for sure. They laugh some more, then eat again. The mood in the trailer lifted. Try my dialect, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not worse, that's for sure. 
they they laugh some more than and not worse. <laughs> that's for sure. They're <laughs> not worse. They're not worse. I got to do an answer. One of, one, of, one of my favorite comedians is Kathleen Madigan, and she talks about the South. Uh-huh. And she goes, "Would you hurry up? I've got a decade." <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> they laugh some more than eat again. The mood in the trailer lifted. Then Stephen thinks of something that just might help. Doesn't that roofer O'Malley, doesn't he owe you money? Holy <laughs> fuck, what's <laughs> that? He's stuck in that with both feet there, son. You've uh, never actually back. been to this house. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> the New Englander doing You're this. You're down there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're O'Malley. Back down I'm O'Malley, O'Malley right? You're okay. O'Malley. Uh, scene 11. Oh, Corey looks at him. Blah, blah, blah. Scene 11. O'Malley's Place Day. The next morning, by the way. O'Malley's business consists of a rusting metal warehouse surrounded by industrial scrap, old trucks, junk cars, and all kinds of unrecognizable roofing materials. Corey and Stephen walk across the yard with O'Malley, an Irishman from Ireland, from Ireland. Just practice like this. No. Uh, luckily, it's an Irishman from Italy. Who came to West Texas for reason he long ago intentionally forgot? Through Jersey. <laughs> I, I don't have your money. I did the work. Oh, I know you did. You owe me $400. When I get paid, you get paid. I can't wait, O'Malley. O'Malley stops, gestures around his corroding kingdom, proof positive the debilitating status quo. We're all waiting, Corey. The whole blasted country is waiting for the one guy at the top to pay what he owes. He turns to walk again, but Corey grabs his arm, stops him. That's not good enough this time. I need the money. O'Malley looks down at Corey's hand and his arm, then into Corey's eyes. Corey lets the seriousness of the moment speak for itself and releases O'Malley's arm. O'Malley takes a break, settles on a solution. I'll give you the tent. He walks through the warehouse. Corey and Stephen follow. What? It's an army tent. They used it for assembling missiles somewhere overseas a few world wars ago. Moments later, O'Malley's warehouse, scene 12. More rust and clutter, roofing gear in various stages of disrepair. Another immobilized truck. Bright shafts of light break in through gaps in the sheet metal structure. O'Malley, Corey, and Stephen open and enter through a huge overhead door that spills in daylight. I got it from a man in Brockton who couldn't pay me for what he owed. That's after I did the work. It's worth about, I don't know, 400 I'll give you that if I can find the damn thing. They reach a corner of the warehouse, move stuff out of the way. Big things, small things, unrecognizable tools and debris. Endless salvage. Corey and Stephen help. And then there it is, folded up and tied with rope. The tent. It's big and long and heavy and cumbersome. Guy gave it to me, bought it from a traveling preacher who made money in Louisiana, sold it, and bought himself a bigger tent. It holds 100 people or more and comes with a string of lights and a thermometer. Take it or leave it. Corey and Steven stare at it. No idea what to say. A thermometer? Gets hot in the sun, boy. They didn't want no missiles blowing up. Silence. They just look at it. Missiles blow up when it's hot? How the hell do I know? He walks away, heads toward the open overhead door. Corey stares at the tent. He says mostly to himself, but loud enough for Mally to hear. 
What am I supposed to do with it? O'Malley doesn't answer, just keeps going. Corey turns to him, calls out again, louder this time, and aimed right at the roofer. What am I going to do with a tent? O'Malley, go ahead. Sell it to somebody else. O'Malley's place, later. The tent is loaded into the back of the rusted Chevy half-ton. It sticks out four feet beyond the truck bed. Corey ties it down, tossing a rope from his side of the truck to Stephen on the other side. Stephen catches the rope, watches Corey come around the truck, take the rope, kneel down, secure it. He works in silence until... You okay? Thinking. What? Corey doesn't answer. When he has it all tied down, he stands, stares at the tent as if the germ of an idea has occurred to him, taking an unclear shape in his mind as if he can't see it yet can only feel its arrival. Dad, what? Corey doesn't respond. He moves back around the truck, checking all the ropes, working on that thought. Dad. They're on opposite sides of the Chevy. Corey opens his door, finds Stephen's eyes. Let's go. Where? Corey gets in the truck without answering, still thinking. Stephen waits a moment, then opens his door and climbs in beside his father. Corey starts the truck. I'm going to skip scene 14. Scene 15, two-lane blacktop. A two-lane blacktop stretches for hundreds of flat-ass floor miles in both directions. Mm. I said ass rather than ass. I liked it better that way. (laughs) Flat-ass floor miles. The Chevy rolls on. I got an idea about the tent. How we can make some money. Inside, the Chevy half-ton. Paper, soda cans, trash, tools, clutter. Stephen stares out the window. Corey stares straight ahead, finally. Who you can sell it to? No. Then what? What he said, O'Malley, about the first guy who owned it. Stephen shakes his head, no idea what his father is talking about. He was a preacher. So? So I'm thinking we're going to help people. Go on. Help them what? We're going to help them find, you know, God. God? There are people out there by the thousands having trouble finding God. We're going to help them. How? I'm going to preach. Preach? That's right. Stephen shakes his head, half holding on to the idea that Corey is kidding, half trying to stop this in its tracks. On the side of the road is a motel. That's seen trucks fly by for 50 years. Corey pulls the truck into the parking lot, parks down the row of rooms from the office. This is a bad idea, Dad. You got a better one? Of all the ideas, this one's the worst. Because I don't. You don't go to church. You've never been to church. My grandfather took me to tent sermons. We could do this. We don't even have a Bible. Corey smiles, turns off the engine, gets out of the truck, heads for the office. Stephen watches him go, refusing to wrap his mind around this. I got family coming from out of town for a reunion. You're Georgette, by the way. Looks just like... uh, (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Could you pull your uh, skirt up just a little bit? What kind of an audition is this? (laughs) If I pull these jeans up anymore, you're going to see some camel toe. Internal motel office, moments later. Coffee pot for the guests. A newspaper or two, a sad and sorry plant in the corner. Corey stands across the counter from Georgette, late 60s. The motel woman who's seen it all before. The doorway to her living quarters is behind her. The door is open. 
Uh, you're up there, Core. Sorry, I was taking a leak. <laughs> I was hoping it would be okay for me to see a room before they got here. Georgette leans forward, looks out the front plate glass window as far down the row of ro- rooms as she can. You got a girlfriend hiding in a car somewhere? No, ma'am. Just want to look at a room for my relatives. Who are coming from out of town? Mm. Corey nods. She takes a key off the rack. Roommate hands it to him over the counter. He takes it, but she doesn't let go. They're both holding it. You ain't back with this key in five minutes. I'll send Lamar down to find out why. Trust me, mister. Lamar is someone you do not want to meet. Five minutes. Yes, ma'am. She lets go of the room key. Corey smiles and exits the office. Georgette looks behind her. A big, nasty Rottweiler stands in the doorway, gazing up at her. What are you looking at, Lamar? Lamar. Scene 18 is internal motel room 8. Plain, simple, and going to seed. Twin beds separated. Favorite line so far. Plain, simple, and going to seed. Twin beds separated by a night table with a lamp and an alarm clock. The night table drawer is open. Corey, holding the Bible, sits on one bed facing Stephen, who sits on the other. You can't be serious. There's a pile of wood planks they're getting rid of behind the hardware store in Riley. We could take them, nail them to the boxes, and make benches. For what? The flock. So they got something to sit on when they come to watch me preach. (laughs) The flock? And I can build a pulpit out of plywood with a cross on it. And a stand to make me higher. you got to be higher than your flock to make them look up. Up where? I got that dark suit from Dallas. I'll make a, a white collar out of cardboard. I don't think you can do that. I'll slick my hair back, hold this Bible, and we'll be in business. We will? We got the tent, we got the benches, we got the pulpit, got the dark suit, white collar, we got the Bible. But I can't do it alone. I need your help. So what do you think? You going to help me? They hold each other's eyes, then Stephen takes a breath that sounds like his last one before everything changes. I guess so. Then, this is it. Internal trailer, Stephen's room. Small and shabby like the rest of the trailer, but a room of his own. Stephen is in bed, his door shut, a small lamp beside him, the only light. He's surrounded by Little League trophies, Astro's box scores taped to the walls, his glove, his bat, leftover school box, books... Comic books, clothes that need washing. He's shifting through the contents of a shoebox filled with important possessions, coined from other countries, Astros, ticket stubs, first place medals, letters, and a photograph of Rose, his mother. She's holding him when he was a baby, so 12 years ago, when she was 30, the picture isn't in great shape, but good enough to see that she was stunning. Though she doesn't look happy, she looks like trouble. He looks at the picture of Rose and her baby for a long moment. It's not sadness in his eyes exactly, it's longing. He puts the photo back in the shoebox and turns out the light. Trailer day. Next morning, Corey builds benches out of discarded planks, nailing them to crates he's got out of grocery store trash bins. He has his shirt off and sweats buckles as he pounds nails. Just board, please don't take your shit off. Your <laughs> I'm a method <laughs> Nearby, Stephen paints a wooden cross hammered to the front of the plywood pulpit, a deep, rich red. Contrary to Corey, he works without purpose, as if every half-hearted brushstroke were another question. We're going to have to pick one subject and stick to it, at least until we get a handle on this thing. So what's a good subject? What do you mean? To preach. What's a good one? 
How about lying? <laughs> lying. <laughs> or stealing, you know? Like, where you steal a Bible and lie about being a preacher? You feel that way about it? Stephen Shrugs doesn't know, doesn't want to disappoint him, but still... I don't know how I feel. Corey puts his hammer down, moves to the picnic table under the ratty canvas overhang, attaches the trailer on one side and two thin wooden poles on the other. He sits at the table, lifts one of two cold cans of soda, holds it to the back of his neck. You said you'd help me. I am helping you. I've been watching these guys on television, these preachers. You think they're all sincere? I don't know what they think. They do it for the money. But that doesn't mean it's all bad. If we do it for the money, but we say good things, what's wrong with that? We get money, they get something. We all come out ahead. But we don't know anything. We don't believe that stuff. It's, it's all a lie. But a good lie. Now, we're doing it for a good reason, right? Right. We get some money, and they get some preaching. Everybody wins. He gestures at the pulpit, smiles. Stephen takes another drink. They move to the pulpit, lifts the brush. Trailer day. Later that afternoon, Corey and Stephen load eight benches into the halftone. The plywood pulpit with its red cross, it's already in the back of the truck with the tent, which has been moved all the way to one side. So give me a subject, something I can really get my teeth into. They lift a bench half into the truck bed, then Corey climbs up, takes it the rest of the way, stacks it on the other benches. What's wrong with lying and stealing, like I said? There's not enough to it. That's a good start, but it needs to be filled out. Something specific about sins, sex maybe, or, or killing, like that. He jumps out of the truck, they go for another bench. Talk about somebody who lies about killing. I like that. I'll work on that angle. Somebody who lies about killing. External trailer. Stephen and Corey eat dinner at the picnic table. White bread, peanut butter sandwiches, potato chips, canned soda. Corey flips through the Bible while he eats. So, how do you find stuff in here? I don't know. I've, I've never read it before. Yeah, that makes two of us. Across the way, an elderly couple drink beer and watch television under the canvas overhang. The power cord runs from the TV up through an open window and into their trailer. Their grandchildren look at the rusted Chevy parked with the mysterious items then run back to their grandparents when they are scolded for snooping around. Stephen watches the children gawk at the truck, point at the plywood pulpit, and laugh. Where are we going? What? The first town. Where are we going to start? Uh, I was thinking the same thing. Not too far. We don't have much money for gas, and... Truck's on its last legs. Uh, somewhere in here, inside a, a hundred-mile circle. Uh, there. Let's go there. Castle, Texas. Any special reasons? Mm, all right, all right, that's it. I'll work on my sermon, and we'll go day after tomorrow. He heads for the trailer. Stephen looks at the Bible, still on the table, apparently not part of the sermon writing process. Then at Castle, now marked on the map, and says to himself, Because it might be far enough that I'll never see anybody who lives there again. <laughs> External Castle, Texas, day, early morning. The Chevy, preaching gear in the back, drives through Castle, a town described by two words, flat and hot. I don't know. There aren't many people here. It could be hard to find a flock. Good. 
What? Uh, they live on ranches. It'll be fine. At the end of the main street is an open space, all dirt and scrub grass, a park of sorts with an old playground. Chevy pulls into the park and stops in the open area. Corey and Steven climb out of the truck, shape, shake off the 100-mile drive, move to the back, untie the ropes, and unload the tent. It's heavy as heck and unwieldy, and getting it off the truck is a real wrestling match. Oh, we should have set it up one time before we left. Yeah, we'll figure it out. If we ever get it off the truck. Just then, another pickup pulls into the park and stops where they are. Two cowboys, Wes and Kenny, get out of the truck. What you doing, flea market? Uh, We are uh, here to preach the word of God. Been close to two weeks since we had a tent preacher here. I'm sorry, I'm reading uh, both of you. Both, yeah. What faith are you? Faith. Baptist, evangelical missionary, rollers. What? Hmm. We are of God. We do not believe in different faiths. We're all one children. Now, if you boys would kindly help us with this traveling chapel, we'd appreciate it. Cowboys look at each other, then move to the Chevy. Help haul the tent into the park. External Castle Park Day. Corey holding a stack of flyers and Stephen shake hands with Wes and Kenny. The sun is higher and so is the temperature. The men have sweated through their shirts. Corey hands each one a flyer. Then the cowboys get in the truck and drive away. Corey and Stephen watch them disappear down the road, then turn and look at the tent. It stands in the. Thank you for that. <laughs> the tent was 340 feet high <laughs> and six miles wide. <laughs> Amazing how it folded up. It, uh, that's a Cameron movie there, I think. <laughs> yeah. okay. It stands in the middle of a dirt field, 30 feet wide by 40 feet long. You were off by your dimensions. I know. <laughs> oh, you fucked up. That's what the director you was asking. You wanted cubits. Write yeah. it, right it like and six miles span. long and 340 feet high. <laughs> and then the hand of God was handing out over the top of it. The hand of God holds it up. That's yes, the only sir. thing holding this tent. There we go. You mean like Hemsworth. <laughs> it stands in the middle of the dirt field being held up by hands of God. 30 feet wide by 40 feet long, cubits beside. Faded army green. Holes across the top and the He's the, the producer. Side. He can change the lines. <laughs> For the missiles to stick out and big round openings on either end. And a leak. It's called ventilation. You could throw a basketball through the walls. The air movement will keep it cool when all the people pack in. Oh, right. There's tape in the truck. Put these up all over town, these flyers. What are you going to do? Uh, set up the benches, put the pulpit in place, and practice my preaching. Stephen watches Corey go, then looks at the handwritten flyers that say, Looking for God? Come find him tonight in the tent, 8 p.m. He takes a deep breath, and then glances up at the sky. Please, God, don't let anybody come tonight. External Castle, Texas, early evening, light fading, <clears throat> heat refusing to let go. Castle is quiet, an entire town living in the slow lane. <laughs> Scene 26, Castle Park, early evening. Benches in place, four on each side. Corey stands at the plywood pulpit waiting for a flock. Wearing his dark winter suit with the white cardboard collar soaked through with perspiration. Stephen stands near the thermometer at the far end of the tent, which is gloomily lit by the sinking evening sun. 
Remind me next time, we need power for the lights. I don't think there's going to be a next time. Is it eight? One more minute. What's the temperature? Down to 96. Even those two cowboys didn't come. Is it eight? Yes. Sorry, Dad. I know you really wanted to. But before Stephen can finish the thought, two ancient, clattering pickups pull into the park and stop at the tent. Two men, close to 40, wearing bib overhauls and work shirts, sunburnt, beet red, four women, two wives, and two grandmothers wearing clean but tired print dresses, also sunburned, and nine sunburned children wearing tattered but clean clothes get out of the trucks. And Corey should say something like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Stephen should say, son of a bitch. <laughs> the flock sits on the rough plank benches. The flock. Stephen sets behind them. Corey stands at the pulpit. Even with his charismatic qualities, this is his first sermon, and he's nervous. Welcome to the house of God. What did he say? He said, welcome to the house of the Lord. You want to get loud on the good parts? (laughs) Corey nods, eyes wide with uncertainty. The children are impatient, rambunctious, hyper. The other man thumps one into his seat addresses Corey. You don't start preaching soon. I'm going to have to get the rope and tie them to the truck. Uh, come gather around, people. Louder! Come gather around, people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around us have grown. What'd he say? We're fixing for a flood, Mama. Lord have mercy. But we don't have to get drenched to the bone. If we can find the dry land of the Lord, then our salvation is at hand. If we don't, my friends, one and all, then it's a hard rain going to fall. He sweats a ton, hair dripping, unopened motel Bible in his hand, feet glued to the ground. Tonight I want to share with you the story of a fallen member of the flock, a man who did not go the way of God, a man who did not stay dry. What is he? He's going to tell us a story. This lost soul shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And then he lied about the crime. He killed a man and lied about it. Two sins for the price of one. Two sins with one stone. He pauses for dramatic effect. Some in the flock recognize the Johnny Cash addition to the sermon and smile, welcoming the familiar. They like Johnny Cash. (laughs) This sinner who killed and lied... He's stuck in Folsom Prison, where time keeps dragging on. <laughs> Tent night later, dark now, flat horizon stretching forever. Corey's Chevy parked behind the tent, the two ancient pickups parked in front. The moral of this is don't fall into the burning ring of fire, because you will go down, and the flames will go higher. What did he say? <laughs> Satan's all around, Mama. Heaven help us! Tent night later. Moonlight shines through the missile holes, giving the flock a silvery glow. Corey's hair is matted to his head. He is wringing wet. He hasn't moved two inches in any direction. His voice is hoarse from shouting. And so where you're bound, I can't tell. But goodbye is too sad a word. So I'll just say, fare thee well. Amen! He gestures at Stephen who hands a huge wicker basket to one of the men. Corey explains to the flock. For the offering, my friends. Uh, We'd like to end with a song. Song? Uh, 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 A hymn. Sorry. I'll do it. 
You guys straighten that out, will you? <laughs> you be the, my fault. Cutting Sorry, into my guys, big part here. To fortify us to go back out amongst the sinners. Corey looks at Stephen. They're himless. A moment. Then Corey has a thought, addresses the grandmother. Why don't you read us in a I always make a deal that I am not singing. I always make a deal. And here you are. The grandmother like leaps up. Rock of ages. Yes, that would be. I honestly don't know the melody to this, she, guys. Seriously, if you know Rock it. of Ages. Clap for me. Baby, myself in thee. She cuts him off, wails the lyrics, and with a stern look, demands that the others stand and join her. Left for me. Reprise! Her family stands, sings off key. Corey and Stephen watch them, shell-shocked. Tent later. The two ancient pickups drive off into the night, sunburned families fortified to live amongst the sinners. Later, Corey sets the platform that holds the pulpit absolutely whipped. Stephen sets on the first bench. Now will you believe we can't do it? Corey says nothing. Stephen eases the blow. It's just that you don't really know how to do this, Dad. Corey notices the wicker basket on the bench near Stephen. He reaches for it, looks inside. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You just weren't meant to be a preacher. Corey looks up, smiles, suddenly energized. Look! At this. He holds a handful of paper money, mostly ones, but some fives in the corner of a ten. He counts it. Ten, fifteen, eighteen, another ten. There's twenty-eight dollars here. You know how many burgers I had to fry to clear twenty-eight dollars? But we still didn't do very well at it. Are you kidding? We did great at it. Praise God. Praise God? Yeah, from whom all blessings flow. Hey, I like that. I think I'll work that into my next sermon. We're going to do this again? We're just getting started. Oh, good. <laughs> it's 5 a.m. They are in their Chevy, uh, Chevy uh, and they're moving. Corey listens, mouthing the words, catching the cadence, the inflection, the style, the energy, and practicing. Go, radio preacher, whoever you are. Sprinkle with faith and piety. Holy water can move the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to bless your loved ones and protect them, body and soul. And now, by the glory of Jesus, you can experience the healing powers of holy water in the privacy of your hearth and home. Stephen looks at his father, rolls his eyes. Go. For the one-time price of $5.50, you can have delivered to your door four ounces of the very water where Jesus himself was baptized by John. Praise Jesus! And just then, the Chevy drives through the two-block-long town of Winston, a dried-up whisper of a place. That was it. What? Winston. That was it. Couldn't be. There's nothing there. He slows down, checks the rearview mirror. Stephen opens the map between them and takes up half the truck. Has to be. There's nothing else. Was Winston, I Texas. Or not? I, what? Was I doing a dialect or not before? I don't remember. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, Winston, Texas, 5 a.m. The Chevy makes a U-turn, the only car on the road, and heads back to town. Radio preacher still going on. Just one drop 
is a holy shield from all kinds of calamities. Wednesday, an empty lot. Later. In an empty lot next to a hardware store, Corey and Stephen pitch poles, pull canvas, and raise the tent. Even now, before sunrise, it's plenty hot. The streets are empty. Seems like nobody else in Winston is awake. I want to write her a letter. Cool. Uh, why? Because she doesn't hardly know me. I don't know where she lives. What if I fell off a horse and broke my leg? Cut. Go back to the top of the scene, just to let you know we're talking about your real mother, Rose, <clears throat> who has not been mentioned before. So this is your mother. You're 12 years old, as it's written in the book, even though we're going to make you a little bit older. But as it's written in the book, you're 12 years old, and you haven't seen your mother for seven, eight years. And you still kind of want to know who she is. Don't really remember. And then Corey hates her. Adulterer, rests, that kind of thing. And so he doesn't want you to know his mother. So there's a little tension between you and this. Okay? Ah. Top of the scene. I want cool. Stephen. I want to write her a letter. Why? Because she doesn't hardly know me. I don't know where she lives. What if I fell off a horse and broke my leg? Please don't do that. Or what if I was pitching during a storm and got hit by lightning? I don't have her address, Stephen. Somewhere in Houston is all I know. Silence. Raising the tent is hard work. It could take the two of them three quarters of an hour or more. What would you say to her? I'd tell her about us traveling around West Texas preaching the word of God. Don't tell her about us preaching. And don't tell her about us making money at it either. You don't have her address. I'm not telling her anything. That's right, and don't forget it. I'd tell her you say hello. I don't think so. You're supposed to be a preacher. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt you to say hello, like she was a member of the flock. Sometimes hello is what it takes to get started back on the right foot with somebody. Hmm, I like that. Maybe I'll work it into my sermon. Stephen rolls his eyes, reaches behind him into the chevy, comes out with two baseball gloves and a ball. Corey keeps pulling canvas. You said we'd catch when we got to Winston. We have to get the tent up, do the flyers. You said... Uh, three batters. Stephen grins. He tosses Corey his glove, moves 60 feet away. They throw a few easy ones, and Corey gets down like a catcher. Top of the first. Nobody out, nobody on. Who are we playing? Dodgers. Valentine looks down at the third base coach and steps into the box. External Winston day later, Corey and Stephen walk down Main Street. Stephen carries the flyers and the tape. Winston is just waking up. We learn two things from the first one. We have to write the sermon down from now on, and what else? We have to sing a hymn, and we have to sing it loud. Right. They arrive at a corner. Shops are opening for business all around the town. You put up the flyers. I'll take care of the hymn, and we'll meet back at the tent. Stephen nods, and Corey disappears down the street. Stephen takes a breath, sees a flat wall, tapes up a flyer. He steps back to examine it alone with his thoughts, and a demanding voice so sharp and pointed it could hurt somebody makes him jump out of his skin. What faith are you? Sorry? <laughs> Pirate lady. <laughs> of which Boy, faith are you? Uh, well, Christian, I guess, if it's all right. I know that, boy. But are you of uh, the rock in the mount or the fish? Stephen has no idea the wave of disdain coming out of her mouth blows him a step back. 
I don't know. You'd have to ask my dad. Of the fish? I don't know what you're talking about. She glares at him, (laughs) takes a flyer, turns and walks away. Stephen, stunned, watches her go, then calls after her. Why don't you come to the sermon tonight and find out? The righteous woman spins on a dime, moves back to him, bends down so that they're face to face. Oh, we will, boy. We will. She walks away. He lets her go this time, (laughs) says softly. Who's we? (laughs) Internal Winston Pawn Shop. From lawnmowers to luggage to jam jars to jewelry, the shelves are packed with all kinds of personal possessions traded for fast cash. But only J ones. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Corey examines a real reel that comes with a couple of old school speakers. Tina is the pawn shop girl. He's she's mid twenties, she's hot, and she's all about it. Tina the pawn shop girl. I can just <laughs> see her now. Looks good to me. Uh, Tina. Uh, Tina. Oh, thank you. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll do Tina, but I call no singing. <laughs> Something cried out to us. Give me Tina. That's fine. So but no did. singing. I'm trading you for no Can singing. You pull those out a little bit. I could. I could. Just do this. I don't, I don't know if that really works. Uh, hey, Corey, set me up with the previous line, please. <laughs> Looks good to me. Uh, where were we? Looks good Looks to me. Good to me. Speakers are scratchy, but I've heard worse. He moves down the aisle to a shelf of tapes. Tilts his head to read the sides of the boxes. She moves with him. Going to sound just fine in the tent. You mean the tent next to the hardware store just went up this morning? That your tent? Hmm, that's the Lord's tent. Are you the preacher? Yes, I am. I'm Tina. Corey. Real nice to meet you, Corey. They hold on for an extra long moment. He's surprised by her attraction to him. Probably he's forgotten how damn good looking he is. (laughs) I'm certainly surprised. I'm sorry. Well, no, I can understand you along. I'm certainly attracted. I don't know. I'm more surprised than attracted personally, but whatever. But just the same, he's not saying no. If this is the kind of attention that comes with being a preacher, he could learn to like it. I'll take that one. He points to a tape. She lets go of his hand and gets it for him further into the store. <laughs> Last preacher came through. Winston had something special going on. Saving souls by the dozen. What do you do? I hope people find God. You know where he is then? Hmm. It's a secret. But I'll tell you. He's in the tent. They're in an area of power tools. He lifts a long extension cord from the shelf, hands it to Bet her. Bet he does. Dazzle <laughs> her with that smile. Could have been another power tool. <laughs> He's handing it to her. Oh, wow. Only need one. Well, that's going to set this line up very well. <laughs> Go on, Corey. And the real line, after all of that, is let there be light. Wow. <laughs> Empty lot, early evening, still inside Winston. The tent is set up between the hardware store on one side and a defunct car dealership on the other. The half ton is parked... I used to have a defunct car. (laughs) Quite a brand. The half ton is parked behind the tent, visible in pieces through the missile holes. Hmm. Corey and Steven exit the tent, head toward the fence that separates it from the hardware store. Corey carries the extension cord. Steven has paper and pencil. Brothers and sisters... I want to tell you a story about a man who was running in silence. Do I have to write every word? Uh, Just the main idea so I don't get lost. Running in silence. This man lived his life looking up at heaven, 
Tears of joy staining his face. Staining his face. And I asked him, I said, Brother, are you worried that the summer sun might burn you till you're blind? Till you're blind? External hardware store, early evening. Lands, Corey lands on the other side. He looks all around. The hardware store is closed. He's alone. Do you know what he said? Empty lot. Stephen stops writing. Are you asking me? No, that's part of the sermon. I'm asking the flock. Oh. Do you know... Corey stands at the hardware store's side door. The top half of the door is made up of small panes of glass. He tries the handle. It's locked. He looks through the glass, spots an electric outlet just beyond the door. What he said... You had to lock it, didn't you? You couldn't leave it open just this one time. Stephen looks up at the fence. That's what he said? What? He said you had to lock it, didn't you? No, I said that. Who are you talking to? Uh, Corey checks his wallet. He's got a couple of bucks left. God, you see anybody on your side? Is that part of the sermon? No, I'm asking. Do you see anybody? No. Corey sighs. He doesn't want to do it, but he's going to. He puts the dollar bills under a rock on the windowsill, says to himself, Consider it an investment in the Lord. And using his elbow, bursts the bottom pane of glass closest to the handle. He clears away the glass, reaches inside, and opens the door. Checking all around, he steps inside the doorway, pulls the end of the extension cord through the busted-out plane of glass, reaches down, plugs it in, moves outside, and shuts the door behind him. Stephen looks impatiently up at the fence. <laughs> One sound effect. In there. <laughs> wow. So, well. what did the man say about being worried about the sun burning him till he was blind? The extension cord lands on the ground next to him. He looks down at it. Then Corey clears the fence and is standing beside him. He lifts the cord and starts back to the tent. Stephen follows, struggles to write, and walk at the same time. He said, not to where I cannot see God walking on the back roads. By the rivers, flowing gentle on my mind. <laughs> That's a country music lyric for uh, the younger people. Are you familiar with that song? Yeah, probably not. Nearly dark now, a dozen trucks and cars fill the empty lot in front of the tent, which glows in the night, amber light, spilling out through the missile holes. Twenty-seven people, men, women, and children, sit on the benches. In the front row are four adults, two men, two women, including the scary, righteous woman, all looking alert and boiled and bleached and mean as mules. <laughs> Tina is here with some of her girlfriends dolled up and ready for a night on the town. Corey and Steven stand inside the tent, but to the side, in the shadows. Corey wears the dark suit and the white cardboard collar. It's hot. He's already sweating. Did you count them? 27. Yeah, that's good. He reaches down, turns on the pawn shop, reel to reel. The opening organ chords of Amazing Grace, scratchy but loud, fill the tent. He checks the tent thermometer, 94 degrees, looks at Stephen. You know what to do? Stephen nods and Corey walks into the light and up to the pulpit. He stands there for a dramatic moment, then raises his arm for silence. Stephen slowly fades the reel to reel volume until Amazing Grace is gone. He lives. Amen. Amen. He lives for all sinners. Amen. Amen. He lives for 
The straight-laced man sitting next to the righteous woman <laughs> interrupts us with a loud and challenging voice. Finger pointed at Corey's soul. Would you like me to do this? Yeah, go ahead. You go from Tina to straight-laced. <laughs> Thank you. Be <laughs> you of the true faith. Corey stops, unprepared for a voice like that. The tent goes silent. He says softly, suddenly unsure of himself. There are many faiths, brother. Here it comes. <laughs> yes, but are you of the true faith? Or do you blaspheme? Do you consort with low dwellers? Do you believe in God, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Or do you live with freaks and perverts and those consigned to burn for eternity? Corey is pushed back two steps by the volume and power of the straight-laced man's hatred. He's overwhelmed, silent. I asked, do you believe? I... You do not believe! We... You do not believe! Corey steps back again from the pulpit, retreating from the hate. Stephen takes a step toward him, as if wanting to save him somehow. And then something happens. An unknown switch, hidden somewhere deep inside Corey, flips the other way. His shoulders straight, stiff, and okay. It's going to take some real character building here for you to do that, but try. Take this change. His back straightens. He raises his hands above his head. No! His voice is loud, echoing throughout the tent, and so sudden that it silences the straight-laced man. Not easy to get an echo out of a tent, I might <laughs> <laughs> He takes forceful steps toward the man until he's standing in front of the pulpit, close to the flock. I do not believe in hate. I do not believe in hate. God is a God of love. He loves all, all who come to him. His love is in me. In you, brother, in this holy tent, I believe in love, the God of love, who loves all things, all people, the one God, the one God. Praise Jesus. Praise, Praise Jesus. Jesus. Oh, Amen. Lord Flock, can you get a little love? <laughs> Praise well, well, they're, they're coming around, right? I mean, they're not like immediately, you know. The straight lace man. Okay, I'm not directing you today. Okay, the straight lace <laughs> man. Nods his head and sets. Then we'd be here forever. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the straight lace man nods his head and sets. Corey lowers his arm, looks at his flock. They are focused on him, completely present. He feels it and smiles. Brothers and sisters. I want to tell you a story about a man who was running in silence. Tell it, tell it, preacher. That's right. Uh, this man lived his life looking up at heaven. Tears of joy, tears of love, staining his face. Praise, Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. And I asked him, I said, Brother, are you worried that the summer sun might burn you till you're blind? Amen. Do you know what he said? Well, save me, Jesus. Do you know what he said? Do you know what he said? Empty lot later, with the tent still glowing in the night, 27 voices sing Amazing Grace, 29 counting Corey and Stephen to the loud, scratchy music on the reel-to-reel. The chorus continues in voiceover through the evening ends, though the evening ends, as Corey appears and the flock flies files out, shaking his hand as they head to their cars and trucks and drive away. Even the righteous woman and the straight-laced man seem pleased. Tina and her girlfriends linger longer than anyone else, 
but then they, too, are gone. The music finally fades as Corey heads back into the tent. I have to remember that as a character name. Linger Longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's I true. I know that story. Girl. So it's around. Uh, yeah. Lingering. <laughs> uh, the tent where Stephen on the front bench counts the money in the basket. Corey walks past him to the pulpit, stands behind it, surveys the empty benches, changed in a way that Stephen can't put a finger on. Did you see that? Dad... We made a lot of money. $153. No. Did you see that? I, I owned them. They were in the palm of my hand. I could have taken them into a fire. But, Dad, we made more than... Uh, yeah, but did you see it? Did you see what happened? Right into a fire. Uh, Calypso Motel, yeah. night, two weeks later. On the side of the flattest road in West Texas sets an old, sagging motel. A row of rooms with an all-night diner at one end and an office at the other. Maybe it's one-third occupied, maybe it's less than that. It's late, well after dark, in the distance a few stray lights hint at the small sleeping town of Calypso. The Chevy, parked and geared, tied down in the back, pulls up to the office and stops. Corey and Steven get out looking a bit like zombies and they start with the office. We'll get up early and raise the tent. I'm too tired now. And hungry. Can we eat? Inside motel room later. Steven sits on the bed, counts a Downs a cheeseburger fries. <laughs> One cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and slice of pie, a long way from ketchup soup. Nice. He watches TV with the sound off because Corey works on his sermon at the table. You said we'd catch in McKay. Then you said we'd catch in Bingham. Then you said we'd catch in Foggy Flats. And said we'd catch in Calypso. And now here we are. Tell me, what do you think? Tell me what you think. (laughs) Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. That's a line from a famous poem I just remembered. Or ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. That's uh, President Kennedy. Except I put God in there. Which one's better? I'm asking if we can catch. I'm asking about my sermon. We're both good, I guess. Yeah, each one does say something. The phone rings. Corey and Stephen look at each other. Who could possibly be calling them? Cut. Uh, just to let you guys know on the outside, uh, since you're new here, is that they love baseball. Uh, Stephen is really into baseball, and he likens himself to a pitcher. So his number one thing is to throw and catch with his father. And you can see here that they're starting to distance themselves from that. That father-son thing. Okay, so uh, the phone rings. Corey and Stephen look at each other. Who could possibly be calling them? Corey answers it. Hello. It is. Now? Who are you? Uh Uh-huh. Hold on. He covers the phone, turns to Stephen. Two guys want to come talk to us. Help us out. How? I don't know. Maybe they want a job with the tent, putting it up, taking it down. What do you think? Uh, want to talk to them? All right, all right, that's fine. Uh, we'll uh, we'll be here. That's fine. We'll be here. He hangs up, moves to straighten his sermon papers. He called from the motel office. This motel? That's what they said. Knock, knock, knock. Corey looks at Stephen. They then opens the door. Two men stand in the doorway. Jamie, short, thick, and about forty, with a limp and Davis. A little older, wiry as hell, and tall. 
They are rough-looking men hardened somehow, men not to be messed with. They carry themselves with a sense of bad history. It's muted, but it's there. Jamie? You can do better, preacher. Me and Dave's got the know-how. We've only been doing it two weeks, and we're already making more than $100 a day. How can we do better? It's a true <clears throat> fact that you make twice as much if you throw in a healing. How do you mean? Cripples, the blind and the like. All you gotta do is heal a couple of them, and those believers will throw money in the basket. Works every time. Well, I've seen some healing on TV. You lay hands on them and, and they're healed, right? Their faith does the rest? You could say that, <laughs> but they need a little help now and again to get what you might call a clear picture of their faith. Me and Davis like to think of ourselves as God's helpers. We sit in the congregation, and when you call for the lamb and halt your flitch, it gets up and drags my leg. Maybe you saw it when I came in here, the limp, and came up with the hands all raised and crying, and you touch me and heal me, and I walk away straight as a new pin. And that gets the ball rolling? One ain't enough. There are them to waver in their faith, but two always does it. That's where Davis comes in. He's got as good as cough as there ever was. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he's about to heave up a lung. <laughs> then you lay your hands on him and he breathes deep. And that'll do her. Uh, I don't know. We worked with a preacher named Simmons down around Corpus. He hmm. almost doubled his collections in a week. Hmm. They come to see the miracles, you see. They like the miracles more than anything. But, uh, won't they know you? Don't you live around here? We're from East Texas. We came over to see where, uh, was for a glimp and... We came to see what there was for a gimp and a lunger. We've been watching you. We like the way you work. So we thought we'd offer, uh, our assistance in making the miracles. Well, how much assistance are we talking about? Fifteen percent of the collection. Fifteen? If we doubled the tape, then ain't, uh, then it ain't so much, is it? Well, let's do it this way. You try us for three nights until the word gets out ahead that you found the power that you're doing some healing. If there ain't a good increase, we part company and that's it. How's that sound? Before he thinks about it, looks at Stephen, then Jamie, hmm. then Davis, who gives them a horrid cough to seal the deal. <laughs> okay, 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 let's try it. They shake on it, then Corey and Davis shake, then Jamie and Davis move to the door. Jamie puts his hand on the knob, but Davis stops him. You forgot his hire. When you're right, you're right. You open to some advice? Yeah. Your hair's too flat. My hair? <laughs> You'll find them prisoners like a good head of hair on them preachers. You gotta get it done up so it makes your head look big. It'd be good if it were silver or white and all combed up and back. And you gotta have big hair to really get them into the faith. Hmm. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. And shoes. Get a feel for it, Davis does. You might want to buy some cheap shoes and send a hole in the bottom. Then you'll want to sit down and put your feet up so they'll see it and think you ain't doing all that well. Hmm. Davis nods, that's everything. Then Jamie turns the knob and he and Davis are gone, leaving a foreboding feeling in the air. Corey crosses to the mirror over the dresser. Stephen looks at his father. Now we got a gimp and a lunger. <laughs> you know what? Corey, you're looking at oh. yourself in the mirror. That's an excellent. You know what? I'm sorry. My hair. 
<laughs> too flat. Everybody wants to direct, right? It's almost Stepped right on my big line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The entire like town, four or five blocks of worn out bars, boutiques, and businesses shimmers in the heat. Three salon chairs. Oh, we're in a salon now. Three salon chairs, a manicure station, a reception desk, blah, blah, blah. Corey sets in the center chair, attended to by Nadine herself, the queen bee. She's got his hair looking big and tall, brushed high up on his head, but still brown. There are six other women in the salon, a client in the chair next to Corey, a second stylist working on her, do a manicurist and her client and the receptionist and the third stylist who sits in the chair on the other side of Corey, reading Corey's flyer. I saw your tent in the park. It's got some holes in it. It's a holy tent, ladies. Even sitting in the chair, getting his hair poofed up, his charisma carries to every corner of the room. He smiles that smile, and the women fawn. Are we invited? She's younger than the others and hot to trot, maybe mm-hmm. looking for more than just an invitation. Corey meets her eyes in the mirror, gives her a little heat back, then addresses all the girls. If I've learned one thing about preaching, it's that my sermon is a whole lot better when i got angels in my flock. I hope to see you all there, is what I'm saying. <laughs> the women melt and laugh at the same time. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Receptionist. So you're staying in town, preacher? Corey looks down at the finger on her, uh, at her finger on his hand, then up into her eyes. Nice finger, you know. The tent is raised in a park on the edge of town. The half ton sets behind the tent. The sun burns down. Stephen is by himself, wearing his, gl- oh, wearing his glove, throwing the ball as high up in the air as he can, getting under it like a center fielder and making the catch over and over. Probably a basket tw- catch like Willie Mays in those days. Yeah. You know, yeah. Willie was still big. A 12-year-old boy in the shadow of a faded army tent in a dried-up park in nowhere, West Texas. A few minutes later, the benches and pulpit are in place. Corey sets on the stage, his hair big and bold, sanding a hole in the bottom of his left shoe. <laughs> Stephen enters, wears his glove, holds Corey's glove, and the ball walks down the aisle and sets on the first bench looking at Corey, who looks at him. I told you later if I have the time. You were a foreman at the door factory in Houston, right? Five years. Then you got fired? Everybody did. The factory shut down. I was seven. Just seven. You didn't try to get another job? You know I did. I went to school for shoe repair. (laughs) Now I'm putting the holes in. There were uh, no shoe jobs in Houston, either. That's why Mom left. Because we didn't have any money? Yeah, it didn't help. But she had other reasons. Like what? Didn't you love her? Of course. I loved her. Just... Just what? Uh, it was complicated between us. It's hard to explain, and I don't like talking about it. Why are you asking me this? Because I was eight, and now I'm twelve. That's right. Things are different. I'm still her son. I just want to talk to her. Internal tent night. Forty parishioners, fanning themselves with flyers, are caught up in Corey's performance. He's behind the pulpit, hair up high, sweating through his cheap wool suit, animated, moving back and forth, holding the stolen motel Bible in one hand, waving it in the air, his voice carrying in the night, flock answering his call. And so, by the glory of Jesus, I come to bring the good news as you go forth. Remember the words of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
all you need is love. Love is all you need. Amen. Amen. The salon receptionist is here along with Nadine and the ladies and parents and children and teachers and ranchers and housewives and truckers and a variety of people dressed in their Sunday finest looking for the Lord. I have heard that there are those who need the healing grace of God. Amen. Come forward, brothers. The Lord is here with us tonight. I can feel his power in my hands. Come forward and be healed. Awkward silence settles in the tent as Jamie, struggling on crutches, playing it to the hilt, stumbling, (laughs) falling into someone's lap, and Davis, coughing like the dead and dying into a blood-stained handkerchief, stagger through the flock to where Corey has moved in front of the pulpit, but is still elevated on the plywood stand. Jamie steps to him first. The flock is wrapped. I want the power of God in me. I want him to heal me. Do you believe? Oh, I believe. Do you believe? I feel it. Amen. I feel it. Amen, whichever it is. Hallelujah. I feel the power of the Lord in me. I feel it in my old bones. I feel it. Thank you, Jesus. I'm healed. I'm healed. Amen. Amen. Then Davis steps forward, blood-stained handkerchief in plain view, offering forth the most horrible hacking anyone has ever heard. Great part. <laughs> Corey <laughs> takes Davis's head in his hands, jerks it back and then forward, shouts to heaven. Be healed, brother! Be healed! Amen! Amen. Hallelujah, Lord! Amen! Amen! Yeah, that gets it. You're the woman. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, what's going on? Stands, stands up. Uh, dig it out. Old. No, life's in gray, but not old. Okay, gotcha. <clears throat> oh, let me let me read that. I'm yeah, sorry. Okay, I right should right. have realized that this no, character no. came in. This is an important character. Davis stands straight, breathes deep without coughing. The tent fills with amens that shake the canvas. Stephen watches, rolling his eyes. It's all so fake. And then a woman stands in the middle of the second row of the benches, tall and thin, lifeless and gray, but not old. She stumbles over people as she moves to the front. I have no strength, preacher. I'm weak and tired, so tired. Please help me. Bring God to me. Please help me. For one second, Corey is taken aback, but then he looks at the flock and holds the woman's head in his hands. Lord! Give her strength. Give her your strength. He snaps her head and she nearly falls, except Jamie is still there and catches her, holds her up. The tent is completely silent, barely breathing, and then... I feel it. I can feel it. God is in me. He is in me. Praise Jesus. Her back grows straighter, and to everyone's amazement, the woman fills with life, somehow grows before their eyes, and becomes a healthy young woman. As the flock collectively gasp, Stephen's eyes go wide. Like them, he is blown away. He's seen a miracle. Oh, my God. Corey, too, is awestruck, but he catches himself, gestures to Stephen, who starts the reel-to-reel. Amazing grace fills the tent. The flock is enraptured, singing the hymn, screaming amen and hallelujah, and praise Jesus. This is what they came for. As the woman, smiling now, walks back to the second bench, and the flock celebrates the glory of God, Corey meets Stephen's eyes, and they share a look that says, I saw it too. 
The tent later, quiet now, lit with silver and gold from the string of lights in the moon. Corey sets on the first bench, counting the money. Across the tent, out of earshot, Stephen sets with Jamie and Davis, who show him the blood-stained handkerchief, teach him the tricks of the trade. This ketchup holds the color better in the last four hours. Looks real. Like the crutches. Then crutches are real. So from now on, mind when I throw them. Sometimes the con- congregation will get to being light-fingered. Then that came to see the miracles, I've had crutch- crutches and even neck braces stole from me. Up and gone. <laughs> so as soon as I throw them down, you come on like an attendant and take them away. Like an att- attendant? Don't wait too long. You can't go buying a new pair of crutches every night, can we? It would eat up the profits. Profits? Ever wonder why profits and profits sound so much alike? <laughs> kind of a message, ain't it? Like we're supposed to be making money? Lord's business. Uh, right at 300 and some change. Very Jamie Davis and Stephen cross to him, and everyone looks down at the neat pile of, of bills sorted by denominations. Seconds tick by, then Corey says softly to no one in particular. We all saw her, right? It wasn't just me. I did. I saw her. She looked so sick, and you touched her, and she just seemed to swell up with life. I saw her. That woman was a miracle. Stephen nods. Miracle is the only word for it. Jamie and Davis look at each other. That woman was Helen. You know her? We asked her to come. She's a filler. Best in Texas. Puss up like a balloon, don't she? <laughs> she don't live but a couple hundred miles from here. Don't you worry, no. We'll pay her out of uh, out of our share. She won't cost you a dime. Pot always gets bigger when Helen gets healed. Sometimes a whole lot bigger. She isn't real. Well, of course she's real. You just saw her, didn't you? <laughs> she's one of the reasons your collection did so good. We called her last night. Wait a minute. You thought you cured one, didn't you? <laughs> Davis, listen up. He thought he cured one. Coming here. On his first run, he healed one. That's what he thought. Oh, man, that's good. Corey looks mortified for three quarters of a second and something else, too. Guilt-ridden, and then he's past it. Buries it deep. He smiles at himself, and then his smile turns into a laugh. Jamie and Davis join in. Corey grabs a handful of money. <laughs> Praise Jesus! We are going to be rich! Praise Almighty! God from all blessings flow! And then they're laughing it away. Stephen looks at his father with Jamie and Davis and tries to laugh along. So he's not the odd man out, but something holds him back. <laughs> Inside the motel diner the next morning, Corey and Stephen sat in a booth by the windows. Corey's hair poofed up high is a sight to be seen. But this morning... In this greasy spoon, it looks right somehow. The result, the remains and results of breakfast are evident, but the plates have been pushed aside, and there's an envelope by the table between them. Eighty-five percent of three hundred is two fifty-five, minus thirty for gas and hotels, two twenty-five. Your half is one twelve and fifty cents. Stephen opens the envelope, and his eyes shoot open. There's a thousand dollars in cash stuffed inside. I've been holding your share since we started. But now with this healing, this uh, thing is going to take off, and I want to make it clear. 15% off the top for Jamie and Davis, then expenses, and what's left, we split 50-50. Right down the middle. Are we stealing it from them? Stealing it? You're not really going to heal anybody. 
people want to be healed, let's start with that. People want to be healed. And, well, if they think they're being healed, then they're being healed, right? I, I don't know. It's just another way that we're helping them find God. They want to believe in miracles. So we do some healing, and they get to believe that the Spirit of God is at work in the night. That by itself is a kind of small miracle. It's uh, psychological, Stephen. I've read about it. It works. Just then, Jamie and Davis enter across the booth, set. Jamie on Corey's side, Davis with Stephen, who lifts the envelope, puts it in his pants pocket. Jamie hands one handwritten paper to Corey and one to Stephen. Me and Davis looked at the map, then at the calendar, and made up a schedule of what towns on what days. You can't use the same crypts and lungers again and again anywhere near the same place to come back and see me and Davis for Helen and Silver. Uh, so we move every day? But not in a line. We go up one way, 200 miles or more, then back another way, and then in a different direction another way. You don't want them to start following you around. That just flat ruins your chances of getting new converters to heal. <clears throat> uh, they'll come, and they'll come, as word spreads that you've got healing touch. They'll come. The waitress arrives with two coffees, then exits. Jamie reaches for the sugar, grabs half a dozen packets. You'll be up to your knickers, neck braces, crutches, and slings. Two weeks later, in the tent, night. The flock is 125 parishioners, strong, and Corey has them right where he wants them. His energetic performance isn't spiritual. It's his rock star charisma and high wattage charm that's fueling this fire. Brothers and sisters, there are those of you who have strayed from the Lord, walked off the prayerful path, and come to the edge of an ocean of trouble. That's right. In here, I am waiting for you, and together we can see Jesus on the other shore, and I know in your heart. You want to find your way back to the Lord. And the light, he's shining down on you. Amen, Amen preacher. Tell the truth. I want to cut right there. Right now, his hair has now been dyed white. Nice. It's even higher and bigger than before. <laughs> he wears a slick new suit and works the new, much larger pulpit like it's the grand old Opry stage. On the ground beside me is a hammer and nails. A pile of wood, all the tools I need to help you find God. Praise the Lord. Jesus. Now, Corey looks to the side, finds Stephen, who wears a new, expensive Astros jersey and even newer state-of-the-art sneakers. Corey holds Stephen's eyes to let him know that this sermon is for him. Now, there are some who say, Preacher, you're stealing those tools, so you're not helping these people find God. Tell the preacher. Tell them to them I say I'm building a bridge to Jesus. Hallelujah. To them I say like a bridge over troubled water. <laughs> I will lay me down. Praise God. And while we're crossing that bridge together, if we find our way back to the Lord, we'll turn our eyes to the skies and say, Hello, Jesus. Hello, Jesus. <laughs> because sometimes hello is all it takes to get back on the right foot. With somebody. And like a bridge. That's how I know I was Garfunkel my way through the water. Yeah. Yeah. Nineteen seventies. Yeah. Later that night in a vacant lot in a sweat soaked West Texas town, dozens of cars and trucks are parked near the tent, illuminated by the light leaking through the missile holes. 
Stephen sets on the lowered back hatch of the half ton, which is parked near the side entrance of the tent, close enough for him to hear the voices of his father and the flock and listen for his cue. He examines the contents of his backpack and talks to Helen, who leans against the truck, smoking a cigarette. Let's make it a trifecta. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm gonna, I'll give in. Go ahead. You think uh, these people know it's all fake? I think they do. We've done 15 shows in 16 days. Never made less than 700. A couple of times we made more than 1,000. If they know it's a lie, why do they keep putting money in the baskets? They want it to be real so bad, they act like it is. Who's that? My mom. She's sick or dead or something? No. Well, then why do you got those sad eyes? She left us four years ago. We were all in Houston then. Me and Dad moved to West Texas. Texas. Mom stayed. But we don't know her address. I, I want to talk to her again, but it don't seem like I ever will. I have heard that there are those who need the healing grace of God. How come you don't ride with us every night like Jamie and Davis do? Well, I got two girls at home. You're married? Not the last time I checked. So they don't have a father? Well, they got a father somewhere. Who stays with them when you're not here? Or when you're here? The older one's 14. So they're alone. Maybe you could bring them to the tent sometime. I don't think so. Why are you doing this? I can't stop. Come forward, brothers. Lord is here with us tonight. I can feel his power in my hands. Come forward and be healed. Call her, Stephen. Everybody's got a phone number. I want the power of God in me. I want him to heal me. Another roar in the tent, and she walks through the opening. He watches her go, looks down at the photo of Rose... And then remember something important, something good, something that could make a difference. Empty lot, night later, midnight. The crowd is gone. Jamie and Davis talk with Helen by her car. Jamie hands her a stack of cash. Nearby, but out of earshot, the Chevy is packed high and wide. Whoop. Packed high and wide with the tent. The additional benches, the larger pulpit stand, a small gas powered generator, and Stephen's slick new 12 speed bike. <laughs> Corey checks the ropes. Stephen follows him around the half ton. Jamie's driving the truck back to the motel. You're riding with him and Davis. Where are you going? Um, Corey comes around the truck. Stephen follows his gaze to where a woman, hot as summer, waits by her red Mustang smoking a cigarette, silhouetted in the moonlight. A member of the flock needs some special attention. Uh, 900 minus 135 minus expenses... 370 and change. Stephen shoves it in his pocket. Corey checks the ropes. What are you doing with the money? Uh, hiding it in the truck. Putting it in my backpack. I'm buying things. Like what? Clothes, food, sneakers, catcher's mitt, bats, home plate, bike. Anything I want. Where are you getting all that? In the towns. When I put up flyers. Though they're standing three feet apart, there's a canyon between them. They both feel it. I'll uh, be back later. You have Mom's phone number, and I want it. What? When I got that <laughs> fever and you took me to the doctor, you called her. I remember that now. You have her phone number. Corey steps to Stephen, leans in. The tension between them is real and escalating. 
but neither backs down. Corey's voice is low, but carries an emotional bitterness that's coming from someplace deep. He taps an angry index finger on Stephen's chest. That was three years ago. She could have moved ten times since then. That number's no good. Now you listen and listen carefully. Get this idea out of your head. Understand? She's gone, Stephen. She's long gone. She's not coming back. And that's the way it should be. All right? That's the way it has to be. They glare at each other, neither one giving an inch. Both of their gazes shifting to the Mustang woman. Mustang woman! (laughs) You're so distracting! (laughs) Stephen lies in bed, wide awake. The motel clock on his bedside table reads 3.15. On the other bed, his father's bed... Corey's unpacked suitcases set on the smooth, undisturbed bedding. Stephen glances at the clock, at the suitcases, back at the clock. Hello. Is it me? No, I've got 15 minutes. I just wanted to check with the time. Where are we at? The sun rises. Oh, the sun rises and brings with it the heat. The Chevy is parked in the middle of the long row of rooms. Stephen sits on his bed, already dressed, sharp new clothes, and a different pair of new sneakers that last night looking than last night. Looking at Corey's unopened suitcases on the bed across from him, stealing himself for his next move. He steps to the other bed, opens Corey's suitcase, searches through the clothes until he finds Corey's black book. He flips through it, stops on a certain page. A phone rings and rings again. Stephen stands at the payphone outside the metal uh, motel off metal office, waiting as the phone on the other end rings again. A woman answers. Shall I? Yes, <laughs> of <Okay>. course. <laughs> the phone woke her up. Hello? Is Rose there? What time is it? It's early. Is, is Rose there? Who's calling? Stephen. I'm her son. No. Mostly she don't live here. Uh, can you get her a message? She ever shows up, can't say when that'll be. Maybe never. When she's gone, she's gone. Well, tell her I called. Tell her me and Dad are doing good now. We're preaching the word and healing people in West Texas. Tell her I turned 12 and I want to see her. Tell her I got money and I can pay for her ticket, her hotel, her food, everything. I got a list of towns we're going to be in... Uh, where we're going to be. Tell her to look for the tent. On Friday, we'll be in Horaceville. On Saturday, we'll be in Willard. On Sunday... Cut. Two-lane road, daybreak. The half-ton rolls down an empty road, hundreds of miles long, straight as a string, flat forever. Corey and Stephen are in the cab. Jamie and Davis, Davis sit in the back with the tent, the pulpit, the stage, the benches, the generator, the bike, the suitcases, the whatever. Corey and Stephen, Jamie and Davis raise the tent in an open field on the outskirts of town at the crack of dawn. They work in silence, each one with a job to do. Night. Corey has 140 parishioners on the edge of their seats. Arms outstretched, he calls for those in need of the healing grace of God. Jamie and Davis, with crutches and bloodstained handkerchief, come forward. Corey and Stephen count the money later. Jamie and Davis carry the pulpit to the half-ton. 2 a.m. The Chevy pulls into a roadside motel. Everyone gets out. Corey heads for the office. Stephen exits the sports store the next day wearing his backpack, flyers in hand. He looks down at his brand new cleats. They don't make him happy. Night, 150 parishioners find God with Corey. 
Middle of the night, the traveling chapel packed full alone on the road. Corey, Stephen, and Jamie and Davis raised the tent the next day in a West Park, uh, Texas park. Stephen plays catch with Davis, who shows him a new pitch. Davis has his shirt off. He's got serious scars, knife fights, bullet wounds. Who knows how he got them? Tulane Road, Sunrise. Salinas Creek, vacant lot, early morning. The tent is raised in an empty lot off Main Street. Helen swells with life later that night, enrapturing more than 160 parishioners who throw money in the four wicker baskets that make their way through the flock. Mm. Corey reaches to heaven, hails the glory of God. Later, the flock has gone home, satisfied witnesses to Corey's healing touch. Corey, Jamie, <laughs> Davis, and Helen set on near the set on or near the stage, counting the cash in the wicker baskets. Stephen sets with them. There's still tension between him and his father. It's not going away. Why do we need a new tent? Because they're spilling out the sods. Why? Your dad's a big damn deal now, boy. He's going to get uh, even bigger. You watch. Hmm. So you bought it? Uh, sight unseen. I pick it up tomorrow morning. It'll hold 500 SOBs. Uh, souls on board. <laughs> <laughs> it's. You trade it for this one. No, I think I'll keep this one so I can remember where I came from. So you don't get prideful? Make sure I never go back. The truck won't fit what we already got. How are we going to carry all this stuff? Well, that's parts of surprise. Oh. Rose. I like surprises. No. He's Rose. Rose. He stole okay. Rose in the line. He's the woman. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, Rose yeah, and the woman yeah, are the yeah, same person. I figured as much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was lying, right? Yeah, I figured. I like surprises. They all look to the voice. You know, Standing nobody the, does it. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. <laughs> Duncan, you were so surprised. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Surprising. Standing at the far end of the tent is Rose, Corey's ex-wife, Stephen's mother. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years old, she was no doubt a drop-dead beauty two decades ago. She still radiates serious sexual heat. Well, at least that part's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but she's harder around the edges now, as if she's been living too fast and paying too high a price for too long. Above all else, she's nobody's fool. She's hard in that way, too. Corey and Stephen recognize her instantly and are so blown away that all they can do is stand up and freeze. Corey's reaction is visceral, the breath is literally sucked out of his chest. Jamie and Davis and even Helen are wide-eyed and silent. This is the hottest woman they have ever seen. Miles and miles of their out of their league. For the gimp and the longer, she is a figment of their nasty imaginations come to life. As she walks down the aisle, Stephen runs to her like a 12-year-old boy. Corey reaches a hand out to stop him, but misses. Mom! She puts her arms around him and he holds on. She looks down at him and then up at Corey. Years and years of bad blood and distrust pass between them. She smiles at him, says in a voice that could melt glass. Hello, darling. <laughs> she is seduction personified. It makes Corey crazy, but infuriates him at the same time. Incendiary, a little combination of emotions that raises the temperature in the tent 10 degrees. Everyone feels it. Stephen is squarely in the middle. Corey keeps his eyes on Rose, but addresses Jamie, Davis, and Helen. You want to finish counting that outside? But the Crips are as overwhelmed by the heat of Rose's presence as Corey, who now looks right at Jamie. Give us a minute. I saw your sermon. Stood in the back. Couldn't get a seat. All sold out. How'd you find us? 
I called her and left a message. Told her where we'd be and when. You did what? I found her number in your suitcase and I called her. You went through my things? Oh, leave him be. Just wanted to see his mama. Can't blame a boy for that. She can't stay. Yes, she can. We're leaving for Whiteville tonight. She's riding in the truck. I'm paying for her room. I'm paying for everything. Sure you got enough money, little man? Just then, Jamie enters the tent, walks to them, smiles at Rose, so she knows he thinks she is hot, too, and hands Corey and Steven their share of the take. A thick wad of cash, at least $400 for each of them. Flock's getting bigger, preacher. And they're putting more money in them baskets every night. No telling where the top is, but we ain't reached it yet. He smiles at Rose again and walks away. Rose looks at the stacks of bills. Corey looks at Rose. Whiteville Motel, night later. Stephen and Rose exit the office and walk down the row of rooms toward Corey, Jamie, and Davis, who stand in front of the half-ton, which is loaded with the gear and parked about mid-row. Rose holds her room key, smokes a cigarette. As Stephen and Rose approach, Jamie and Davis break away from Corey and walk to the room. They make sure to give Rose a long look as she passes by. She knows they're looking. It doesn't phase her. She would twist them inside out. A car pulls up and parks beside the truck. A young, very hot girl, a giving member of the flock, gets out of the car and smiles at Corey, who watches Stephen and Rose walk by, then moves to the girl. Rose walks Stephen to his room, says goodnight, and then, when his door shuts, walks back a few doors to her room. She puts the key in the lock, then glances down a few more doors to where Corey and the girl are heading into his room. You don't stay with your boy, preacher? Don't judge me, Rose. Don't you ever judge me. Would you let me continue? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I do remember this. What? That tone of your voice. The way you narrow your eyes. She reaches up, runs her hand along the side of his face. The heat of her touch burns his skin. <laughs> the line of your jaw when you mean business. The way you smell when you're all hot and bothered. And then I remember what would happen next. It's not going to work. I spent four years getting over you. Four years moving on. Looks like you did a bang-up job. How old is she, preacher? 22? 21? She's 20, ain't she? What do you think she knows about the world? You got two days. When we leave town, you go home with nothing. You understand me? Two days. He glares at her, then walks away and goes into his room with the girl. Rose takes one last drag of the cigarette and goes into her room, too. Dawn. Same motel. The shitty is gone, and so is the hot girl's car. Rose sits on a bench outside her room, smoking a cigarette, the town of Whiteville in the near distance. Stephen's door opens, and he exits. He looks at her as if pinching himself and joins her on the bench. It's just the two of them in West Texas right now. You couldn't sleep? Not used to driving all night, spending four hours in a motel somewhere, waking up in a town where I have no idea where it is. And we do it every day. That's impressive. And <laughs> crazy. When did your daddy start sleeping in his own room? A week ago, maybe more. What? I can't believe it's really you. You said August 7th in Whiteville. It's August 7th, and this is Whiteville, so it must be me. It was you, wasn't it? When I called that morning, it was you I woke up. That's right. How come you didn't say so? Hard to know for sure, little man. It had been four years. It was six in the morning. Didn't know why you were calling. I guess I wasn't ready to talk to you. You ready now? I'm here. So what do you want to talk about? 
What do you do beside go to school? You're still in school, right? Going to sixth grade? Seven. I, I play baseball. Like your daddy. You any good? Just then, another motel door opens and Jamie and Davis exit the room. Stephen looks at Rose at the Crips. Morning, a little later, same motel. In the nearly empty parking lot directly in front of the bench where Rose still sets, Stephen pitches to Davis, who crouches down, wears a catcher's mitt and mask. Jamie is at the plate, literally. <clears throat> Stephen has his home plate in the parking lot. The Crips are in fine form, a real good mood. The first pitch screams by Jamie without a swing. Strike. Oh, I'm sorry. Steer act one. <laughs> Come on now, that was low. Right the knees. Throw him that junk we talked about, boy. Strike two. Oh, that can't be legal. <laughs> one more. Here we go. Blow by him like Nolan Ryan. Strike three. Jamie acts angry, but he's putting on a show for Rose. Who do you think you are, boy? You can't throw a baseball like that and tell me you're 12 years old. <laughs> Corey pulls into the motel parking lot driving a used but still good one-ton diesel truck. Big back bed loaded with the missile tent. A new much larger tent, benches for a flock of 400, pulpit, stage, and some things we don't know what they are yet. He parks it where Stephen just whipped Jamie and jumps out wearing a new suit, his hair high and mighty white. Gentlemen, one ton of fun. Preacher, I'm coming to like your style just fine. You'll notice that in addition to the larger tent that's got no holes, I might add, I traded up for a more powerful generator. Why? Because I also traded up for a more impressive string of lights and a sound system that can make some noise. What did all this cost? Doesn't matter. Bible says you got to spend money to make money or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Amen, brother. We're going to see some real money now. And none of it's taxable because Uncle Sam don't touch church money in the great and wonderful country of the United States of America. Ain't it grand? <laughs> uh, I have to go back. or something I forgot. Now we're going to want some more wicker baskets. <laughs> Me and Davis laugh out loud. Stephen likes the idea of more money, but doesn't like that he likes it. Doesn't like his father acting like this either. He looks at Rose for a reaction, but she's not giving anything away. Later that day... There's a park right in town, and that's where the new tent, larger and nicer than the army tent, is raised and ready for preaching. The one ton is parked behind it. The generator is a little further away to mute the motor. Gassed and cranking. Extension cord running from it to the tent. Another great band name. That is true. Yeah. So it's more of an album name, I think. Well, there you go. How are you doing, Time West? So you're not going to make I'm one minute from... Uno minuto. Know, it'll take me 15 minutes to get there, and I figure it's going to be about 5, 10 minutes just getting out the door. So <laughs> That's I'm, true. i got to start thinking about leaving. Okay. Let me uh, let me look ahead here. Mm -hmm. oh, I'd like to get to the part. Um, you want to do it? it? Yeah, let's, let's, let's do it for do it. another couple of minutes. Okay. Let's go. An ironing board set up. Johnny Cash plays in the new sound system. Sung slow and sweet. Benches of 400 in place. Rose enters back by the sun. I got to admit it, Corey. Remember, Corey's ironing his suit at this time. Yeah. Go. Got to admit it, Corey. You finally found something you're good at. Maybe one day you'll tell me how you came to be a preacher. Hmm. You really want to know? Darling, I do. I bet that's the kind of story everybody wants to know. Uh, a lot of sex going on here. 
What are you doing here, Rose? Okay, that's a little <laughs> creepy there. Corey. <laughs> it's creepy sex. You don't need to look at it there. Oh, Corey, maybe I miss my boy. Maybe, maybe I miss you. Uh, we should never have gotten married. It's a sign, you said when I got pregnant. I ain't getting any younger, Rosie. Maybe it's time I settle down. Maybe what's this baby means? It was bad from the first day. It could have been worse, consider it. What? You might remember I had something of a wild streak. Ah, uh, you can't just show up like this and be his mother. You gonna tell him you sent me away? All his life he's gonna remember that. All his life he's gonna know that I came to see him when he called and you ran me off without giving us a chance. What are you doing? Stephen walks down the center aisle and up to the stage. Corey and Rose come apart. She moves to the pulpit, stands behind it, smiles at her son, cool as can be. Just saying, hey, little man. I'm going to put up flyers. If you don't tell him, I will. Stephen? Stephen stops, turns back. Tell Jamie and Davis I said they can do flyers today. What do I do? You take your mother out for lunch... Then go shopping and buy her something. You got money, right? You know I do. Well, what are you waiting for? You got the day off. Bar and grill day. Um, uh, Rose and uh, Stephen are in a booth by the window. They're eating everything on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want anything else? <clears throat> there is nothing else. You ordered everything on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for lunch. That was nice. How much money is that, little man? Three fifty. But I got more. You putting it in the stock market? No, I'm hiding half of it in the truck and keeping the rest of my backpack. How much is half? Three thousand. She blows a cloud of smoke. <clears throat> he pockets the cash. Main Street day later, like all the other sunbaked waste, Stephen and Rose stroll down the sidewalk looking for the right store to spend some cash. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question? Sure. How come you never called me? Did I do something wrong? No, Stephen. You didn't, never did anything wrong. You are always my perfect little man from the minute you were born. Then why didn't you ever come find me? Well, that's a hard question. <clears throat> People aren't who they think they are, who they want to be. That's the best I can do. You understand? You, you don't have to buy me anything. Yes, I do. You pick the prettiest thing in the store, and I'm getting it for you. You can't talk it out of me out of it. It's your money. The tent night, the new tent isn't full, but it's the largest flock yet. More than 200 souls on board. Soapies. <laughs> Go. This is the story of the day I found God. While walking in the story on the road to nowhere. A day of destiny, brothers and sisters. The day I became a preacher. Yeah. Praise Jesus! At the time, I was a vagabond of the earth, moving on and on and on with no direction, no connection. Amen, preacher. But then, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before me, and I said, Lord, every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines. That's, That's right, Amen! And every, and every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be. Where, Lord? 
Where do I long to be? Tell me, Jesus. Tell me, Jesus. Tell me, Jesus. Where should I go? What should I do? Where do I belong? Tell the preacher. Come on. Praise and the Lord looked into my heart and said, people need to find their way home. And you can raise a tent and share the word and shine the light and show them the way. Share the word. And I said, where, Lord? Tell me where home is, and I will show them the way. Yes, I will. I surely will. And the Lord looked into my soul and said, heaven is home. Heaven is home. Heaven is home. Amen. And I said, with all the power and glory of God, I said, praise Jesus. And then I wish I was homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Double dipping. (laughs) Double dipping in the Simon and Garfunkel. That's a beautiful. 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 Okay, go ahead. Flock amazing grace, but not Rose, who takes a last look at Stephen and exits the tent. Tent, night, same. Rose moves through the cars and trucks to the street. Helen's voice stops her. What about the healing? You've seen one, you've seen them all. You gonna break his little heart? Mom, open the door. No, let me. Oh, sorry. I gotta say this. You're going to break his heart. Rose doesn't answer, doesn't turn, doesn't stop. Helen watches her continue in the direction of the motel, and we hear knocking, accompanied by Stephen's voice, filled with confusion and distress. Let me go on. Right after midnight... Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, Mom, open the door. Mom... Stephen, growing more upset by the second, bangs on the door to his room. Corey, still in his silk suit, hair high and white, stands nearby, as do Jamie and Davis. It's too late to drive home, so Helen is here as well. Helen said she went walking to the motel. Something must have happened. Mom! Corey and the Crips look at Helen, who half nods, half shrugs. Rose went walking to the motel. That's what she saw. Stephen pounds harder. His voice carries. Open the door! Mom! Use your key. I gave her my key. Go to the office, get the damn key. Why in the world did you do that? Because she said she was going to stay with me tonight. Mom, Mom, she didn't want me to be alone again. She's not in there. Yes, she is. No, she's not. Then she's in her room. Panic swelling in his chest, he sprints past Corey and Davis and Helen to Rose's room, a few doors down, pounds on it, screaming. Mom, Mom, open the door, Mom. Quit it, Stephen. Open the door, open the door, Mom! Preacher? Mom, Mom! Stop it! Open the door, open the door! Steven! Preacher? Mom! Hey, Preacher. Corey looks at Davis. It's clear what he wants to do. Corey nods, and Davis takes three fast steps to Rose's room, shoves Stephen aside, lifts his leg, and kicks the door handle with startling viciousness. His heavy boot slams into the handle again and again. The The door groans and splinters and finally cracks open. Davis slams into it with his shoulder. He's impossibly powerful and dangerously violent. Crashes into it. Stephen pushes past Davis and stands in the doorway. Corey moves beside him. The room is empty. Nothing. No suitcase, no toiletries, no sign of her whatsoever. In full panic now, Stephen runs to his room, beats on the door, emotionally controlled now. Mom, Mom. Jamie returns, running down the road. He's got the key to Stephen's room. He puts it in the door, unlocks it, and steps inside. Stephen pushes past. Jamie turns the handle, opens the door. 
and into the room. Clothes, bikes, sneakers, baseball gear, all his stuff everywhere, but nothing, not one trace of Rose. He stands there for a frozen moment, looking, looking. Corey stands in the doorway beside him, burning mad, the reality of what she's done to him again, hitting hard and deep. And then Stephen realizes the impossible truth of it. He moves to the bed, looks under his clothes, beneath the covers, moves his gear this way and then that way, searching for something, absolutely not finding it. My backpack. The money. You told her you kept the money in your backpack. It has to be here. It has to be. She wouldn't take it. She wouldn't take it. Are you that stupid? Have you lost your mind? Of course she'd take it, boy. That's what she does. That's who she is. You got no idea what she's like. No idea what she could do to you. I was over it. I was over it. And then you brought her here and it all came back. All the lies, all the pain. She's a snake. She's a damn snake. Don't say that. She's my mother. She didn't raise you. I did. She's not your mother. She's nothing to us. She's nothing. Don't say that. Stop it. Why would you do this to me? Look what you've done. Look what you've done. I didn't do anything. Don't you... You did it. You let her go. You let her go. Don't you ever talk to me about her again. You understand? Never. Preacher. What? You got someone waiting. Well... Before you have sex with the smoking hot blonde. Incidentally, I was not going to play. <laughs> I've reached my limit of hot blonde. Thank you. On this day. So but scary. now we're at the end of Act Two, uh, and we're getting for the re- ready for the resolution. So, okay. Cool. Nice. Creature? What? You got someone waiting. <laughs> he looks at them both and then exits. Corey takes a steadying breath, then walks. External motel, out of the room, down the row, a pickup truck is parked next to the one ton. Leaning against it is a smoking hot blonde. I'll play that one. Oh, me. Mid-twenties. <laughs> All the guys. <laughs> she looks at Corey and shoots him a very naughty smile. He takes a breath. He takes a breath. Manages to smile back and finds <laughs> Oh, he takes a breath. <laughs> Manages to smile back and find some kind of composure. Steven appears behind him, emotionally crushed. Dad, don't don't leave. You're the one who called her. You can spend the night thinking about it. Steven looks at his father as if not recognizing him. This is this is uh, can I interrupt sure. uh, from the producer perspective? This is part of the end of act 2 and the start of act 3 where Stephen starts recognizing how far his father has gone down the dark path. Mm. Uh, and, Corey, you know, Corey has just gone down that deep end. He's dived over the cliff. He loves the money, etc. And Stephen's going, Dad, this isn't what we are. Mm. And this is part of the father-son redemption. So anyway, Stephen looks at his father as if not recognizing him. Corey turns, walks to the blonde, who meets him at the door to his room. He opens it for her. She walks inside. He follows him without a glance back. Jamie and Davis head into their room. Helen smokes a cigarette in the shadows near the truck. Now, you've read Jamie before, but you can't be Jamie. Okay. No, I'm Jamie Harris, you know, You're whatever. You're being punished for that first read. <laughs> You're going to be Helen from now on. Head spinning, hard turned inside out, Stephen can't move. Seconds tick by. Then he steps to his open door, but just can't go inside. He shuts his door, walks down the road, Davis and Jamie's room, 
and knocks. A few moments, then Davis opens the door. Stephen eyes red and wet with tears looking up at him. He doesn't have to say one word. Neither does Davis, who steps aside and lets Stephen walk in. In turn, could you just a sec to yeah. uh, bring everybody back to uh, Davis and uh, Jamie? Are Davis and Jamie are the two men that are the con people that introduced themselves to Corey a while back. They kind of glommed mm. onto him. Yeah, they glommed onto him because he was good yeah. at what he did. And they used his power because they got 50% of the take. Right. So they from, pretend to be the heel. And, and then, yeah, they yeah. pretend to be the heel, as did Helen. Mm-hmm. Helen was brought into it. If you remember in the earlier readings, mm-hmm. Stephen and Corey didn't know Helen was yeah, part right, of the scam. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, uh, so when Jamie and Davis did that first thing, when heal thyself, you know, when they were limping and coughing, For a minute, et yeah, Corey thought he actually did heal he them. Actually, and actually, they were laughing at him. Right? Yeah, yeah, they were laughing at him because he thought he'd actually healed right. Helen. You actually, right. That was, <laughs> a, great, that was a great that? scene. Yeah. And so Helen is part of the scam. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, the Crips, uh, they call them the Crips. Uh, watch a late night movie, something black and white, blah, blah, blah. Steven sets on one of the beds near them, but not behind them, but behind them, uh, looking lost and heartsick and young. Jamie reaches down, grabs a fresh beer, cracks it open, turns and holds it out to Steven, who takes it from him. Remember, he's 12 years old. Steven sips the beer. It's awful. Knock, knock, knock. Jamie and Davis share a look. Then Davis stands, moves to the door and opens it. Helen steps past him, spots Stephen holding the beer, glances at Jamie, walks to Stephen, takes the beer from his hand, puts it on the nightstand, and leads him. Out of the room, down the road, to Stephen's room. She pushes the door open, and they walk inside. It looks like a bomb off. It looks like a bomb went off in here. Without speaking one word, she moves to Stephen bread, turns it upright. He helps her. She said. She sits on the bed and he sits beside her, heart and mind blown to bits, a moment. Then he starts to cry. This time, just like a 12-year-old boy, she puts her arms around him, strokes his head. He falls easily into her embrace. Uh-huh. In a field outside of town, the new tent is raised. This is eight days later. In a field outside of town, this is in Creasy, Texas. Eight days later. And I feel outside of town, the new tent is raised and glowing with blue eternal. I love that scene because here's Stephen. He takes his first sip of beer inside this guy's room, Mm -hmm. two guys. And the woman comes in, the Roman crypt comes in and takes him out, takes him to his room, takes the beer away from him first, takes him to his room. Gets him into his room and acts like a mother to him. Yeah, sweet. Because she is a mother. Remember, she's got two kids on her own. Yeah. And so it's a sweet, sweet reminder that this is just a 12-year-old fucking kid. Yeah. It's a a great scene. You don't need to say anything. Just walks into the room. There's no fucking dialogue. Mm -hmm. I love that in film. It's interesting how all three of them really don't have to help him at all, but they all identify with him in their own way. Absolutely. It's just a phenomenal... I mean, after Rose has stole all of his shit, and his father is, I don't care about you, I'm just going to go fuck. Yeah. I mean, look what these guys do for a living. It's not yeah. like <laughs> it's not like they didn't have a tough life, too. You know what I mean? So they could be really rejecting. They could be looking at that fucking tough it up kid, but they aren't. they're they're mm-hmm. identifying with him, which is cool. They hand him a beer. They're trying yeah. to... Here you go. Welcome, Sit down, kid. Welcome to the club, man. Welcome to the club, yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. So, back to crazy Texas eight days later. 
Uh, <clears throat> uh, I think it's meant ethereal. Is that the right word? It's just it's spelled a little funny, right? Ethereal. ethereal yeah, it's right uh, misspelled. Yeah, it should be an either. Where is it? A blue crazy ethereal like. Oh, ethereal. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. either. Yeah. Uh, is that the word you're looking for, or he, the writer's looking for? Is ethereal? Is that the right word? Am I, I'm just guessing. No, ethereal. Ethereal? I don't know how to pronounce that word. Eight okay. sermons in eight days since we left Whiteville. That about right? Uh, Davis. Says, Are we going on, or yeah, are you yeah, going to yeah. go to action? No, I don't need to read the okay, action. Okay, so, so would you like me to do it, Davis? Yeah, sure. Sure is, preacher. Two crazy police cars are parked near the front. Internal tent, night, same. 300-plus people are fast-filling the tent. There are 100 seats left, but not for long. People keep coming. The flocks keep growing. Did you want to do Jamie? Do you want to do one of these parts? No, I don't. Okay, no. keep them. And how much have we made in that short amount of time? Just about 10500 in the cash money. Hmm. There are all kinds of prisoners in the tent. Farmers and ranchers burned by the sun, accompanied by children and grandchildren, shop owners, short-order cooks, Widows and orphans, bankers and builders, rich, poor, and all that's between them. Many hold flyers fanning themselves. This is a, There is an unmistakable buzz in the air, a palpable excitement only the lying, laying on of hands can generate. Flock's getting bigger, boys. Oh, yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is, preacher. Yeah. Every night. A few benches back from the pulpit stage, two policemen in uniform, including sidearms, straight from the job with their families, wait for the sermon to begin, as eager and as energized to bear witness as everyone else. Uh, it's a tough audience when the audience is armed. I don't care if they're policemen or not. <laughs> getting louder and crazier at the same time. Amen. It's a, a true fact. And so I've come to the conclusion that this thing's about to take off. Like a rocket. External tent, night. Corey, Stephen, Jamie, Davis, and Helen stand by the one-ton parked beneath the tent. A dynamic exuberance flows from the tent in waves. They can all feel it. Uh, amen, preacher. Amen. amen to that. There's 400 souls on board, and that means it's going to be a big night. I got uh, two things to say. First, this town's got a lot of sinners want to pay to find God. Right as rain. Right as rain. That's right. And second... Those are my favorite kind. Amen to that, Amen and hallelujah. Thank you. All right, then. Now, let's give them what they came for. Music's up in two minutes. Stephen? I'm coming. Corey turns back and struts into the tent. Stephen and Helen stand by the one ton. She lights a cigarette. Neither one speaks. Do you think I've changed since you met me? Since you've been traveling around with us? Do you think you've changed? I think I have. How's that? Well, I got money. I got new clothes. I got a new bike. Two new baseball gloves. A bunch of bats and balls. And my own home plate. I got ten pairs of sneakers. I can have anything I want, anytime I want it. And I like that. I like having money. I just don't like feeling this way, and I don't know why I do. It's called greed. <laughs> I think my dad's changed, too. I don't like it in him. Sometimes, if I squint my eyes this way, I don't even recognize him. Greed can do two things to you, Stephen. It can change you forever, like Jamie or Davis, maybe even like you and your father, or it can break you in pieces. It's one or the other every time. Didn't change you? No. External New River, Texas, Day, Main Street. Corey wearing a silk suit, <clears throat> silk tie, alligator skin cowboy boots, and dark rock star sunglasses steps out of a jewelry store into the sunshine of Main Street. 
his white hair gleaming. Yes. You have wanted to play this your <laughs> whole <away>. life. <laughs> Stephen right. is right behind him wearing sharp new clothes and sparkling new stinkers. Cover your... <laughs> those two. Cover your eyes. They're going to be bright as stars when the sun hits them. Though their rage has dissipated, there's an unspoken underlying tension between them. Mm-hmm. They're as far apart as they have ever been. Go. Uh, well... It's bright. You can see me coming for miles. <coughs> now what? Now it's time to change the way we fly. External used car <coughs> dealership a day later. Still in New River, Corey and Steven cruise the lot, red, white, and blue streamers on every car. Walking in the sunshine, money to burn. Nobody telling me what to do or when to do it. I'll tell you something. If this is what God can do for me, then God is good. He steps at a Lincoln Continental, walks around it, checks his reflection in the window, combs his hair high. Now on Jamie and Davis can drive the truck. I'm riding in style. I had a friend named Farnham in the Army. We got out the same day. I went to Houston, got a job in the door factory. He went to Hollywood to sell real estate to movie stars. The only thing he wanted in this man's world was to be rich. I never heard from him again. Until one day I got a letter in the mail. From Farnham? None other. The only thing in the envelope was a picture of him wearing a suit like this one, leaning against a sky-blue caddy, smiling like he owned the West. He'd written two words on the back of it. Know what they were? What? I'm rich. Long as I live, I'll never forget that car. And then he stops, dead on a dime, eyes glued to a slate gray 1968 Cadillac DeVille convertible, as big as an aircraft carrier, huge fins, wide shiny grill, top down. You got good taste, I'll say that. Thank you, Big Al. I'm Big Al, and this beautiful automobile is a 1968 Cadillac DeVille, smooth as your silk suit. Hmm. V8, 472 cubes, and 375 horses. No mm. rust, no how. Tight as a tick and drives like a dream. Belonged to a little old man who drove like a baby, real gentle. Only 45,000 miles. 19 feet of Detroit's finest ragtop. Read that somewhere, but I kind of like it. What line are you working, mister? I'm, uh, you got to give me five on that one. You killed it. Wow. Okay, no more worries. I'm, I'm going to call her Big Al. <laughs> <I'm gonna> <laughs> Way to dive in. I'm, uh, I'm a preacher, Big Al. Well, preacher, what do you have to say about this gorgeous mountain of metal? <laughs> I could play with that forever. <laughs> Two lanes. Two lanes moving. Metal, everybody. <laughs> the Corey steers the rock <laughs> No <laughs> shit. Uh, Corey steers the caddy with one finger on the wheel, hair blowing in the breeze, but somehow still big and bold. Satisfied smile cemented on his face. Yeah. Stephen rides shotgun, hand over the side, slicing through the air. Corey looks at him. The only way to fly. Pure luxury. Then he looks back at the road. Stephen stares at him and squints his eyes, but it doesn't matter what Stephen does or doesn't do. Corey is unrecognizable. The dirt-poor man who was his father living with him in the trailer, playing baseball with him, giving him Salvation Army sneakers for his birthday. That man is gone. External motel parking lot, day, morning. Another low-slung roadside dive for drivers. 
who can't face one more mile of West Texas heat, or for tent preachers looking for a cheap place to sleep in the middle of the night. Stephen sits on a bench near his room. He holds his baseball glove and a ball, but he's alone. There's no one to play with. Helen's car pulls into the metal motel lot and parks. She gets out and meets Stephen's eyes. The other door, car doors open and her daughters climb out. Amanda, eight, and Molly, 14. Stephen smiles at Helen. She smiles back. External mo- motel parking lot later. Angelic eight-year-old Amanda stands in the middle of the parking lot, arms spread wide, eyes bright. Ready, set, go! Okay, go ahead. We'll have to pick who's I'll race. <laughs> I'll race. You can't win, Amanda. You're not fast. Yes, I am, Molly. She's fast enough. You run good. So do you. Uh, uh, are you coming tonight? Mom said we have to stay at the motel. Have you ever seen her work? She won't let us. Well, you know what she does? She gets healed. <laughs> Ready, set, go! Stephen and Amanda race to Molly. At the end, Stephen slows down and Amanda touches Molly's hand first. Molly rows her eyes but, uh, but smiles at Stephen at the same time. She likes him. He likes them both. All of them are laughing. Even Helen finds a rare moment of relief. And then Stephen notices Corey standing <clears throat> in the door, doorway of his room. Maybe Corey hasn't seen it all, but he's seen enough. Amanda and Molly follow Stephen's gaze to Corey, and then Helen turns to Corey, too. Corey holds Helen's eyes for a long moment, then he turns into his room and shuts the door. Time out. Yeah, what's actually going on down there? What's going on here in the script, and in the process of developing the script, we wanted the audience to think, holy shit. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. If Corey and Helen yeah, that's what we're thinking. got together. I'm asking for permission to think that here, basically. You I'm not are? making a joke, right? No, we purposely did it. Right. Because I'm wondering, this was what does Corey like care? Are, yeah, like, why does he care with the two, you know, like, what is he even looking at? Wouldn't he be thinking that's about That's why I did the timeout, because yeah. this is an important scene. This yeah. is where the audience would go, oh, wouldn't that be great, this ending? Yeah. Then getting well, a, Kinda. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on the casting. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on the casting. Yeah. It depends on the acting and the directing. Know, you know, yeah. But that's yeah. what we yeah. put it in there for. Yeah. This that, one little scene <clears throat> with those three kids liking one another. Yeah. And Helen. Yeah. Yeah. If well, it's like, <laughs> it, it, maybe if it's like, yeah, if if they could together find some sort of peace, that would be cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And that little. That little seed has been planted in the yeah. audience. Yeah, because the way it's written, just in the action line, when Corey looks at Helen, he well, that's how you direct it. No, that's you what you direct it with the eyes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not upset at her when he's looking. Oh God, no. Right. That's the thing. I didn't want to misunderstand. Yeah. Um, Corey holds Helen's eyes for a long, moment, <coughs> a long moment. Right. That's not yeah. implying yeah. anger or anything. Okay. Internal tent that evening. A huge night. The largest flock they've ever had, 400 people plus, are jammed into the tent. This is on their not feet. possibly end well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this but is, it does. This is, well, yeah, this is, this is the old moviegoer in me. I'm like, all right, go ahead. Okay, yeah, you're thinking uh, Elmer Gantry or something <laughs> like that, yeah. Uh, so 400 people are packing in the tent, on their feet, in the aisles, falling out of the sides and back. All of them lost in electrified euphoria. Waving their arms, singing and praising the Lord. Corey is the ringmaster. 
commanding the pulpit stage, hands in the air, strutting like a damned peacock, letting the power of God flow through him. Helen, gray and thin, stands before him, waiting to be healed by the charismatic preacher, who suddenly looks at the flock and holds her head in his hands. Lord, give her strength. Give her strength all the time. Give her your strength. He snaps her head and she nearly falls. Except as rehearsed and performed three dozen times, (laughs) Jamie is there and catches her, holds her up. The tent falls silent. 500 SOBs. You know what SOBs stand for? Souls on board. (laughs) Souls on board. Where am I at? The tent falls silent. 500 souls on board making not one sound. And then... I feel it. I can feel it. God is in me. He's in me. Praise Jesus. She fills with life, a testament of the Lord's power in Corey's hand. The flock erupts with spiritual pandemonium, dancing, shouting, crying, laughing, awed by the strength of their own fabulous faith. Holy energy rocking the tent. Other parishioners come forward. One woman rips her dress off and dances in a slip, wildly in love with the Lord. <laughs> Corey lays his hand on a man who staggers away, convinced that he's healed. Stephen stands by the reel-to-reel. <clears throat> the man with the Bible leans in says in a tone intended to please. I saw you with the preacher before the sermon. Is that your daddy up there healing the sick? Stephen stares at him, caught off by guard by the question before he can answer. The spiritual carnival, loud and rowdy, kicks up to an even higher level as an elderly woman in a wheelchair is rolled to the front of the stage, surrounded by her three grown sons and their families. She is stood up before Corey, who raises his hands to heaven, then lowers them and holds the woman's head. Heal, sister. Heal now. With the power of Jesus, I tell you, to heal. He snaps her head back and her children steady her. Let her stand on her own. She takes three shaky steps, a look of bliss on her face, and then she falls, smacking her head hard on a bench as she collapses. Her family hurries to her, surrounds her, kneels beside her to see if she is all right. She's not. Those in the front near the woman see that she's hurt, not moving. Those behind them all the way to the back of the tent only know that for those three steps, God had healed her, and that's not enough to send them soaring. And that's enough to send them soaring. Corey is frozen. He knows something is very wrong. Stephen sees it too on Corey's face. He leaves the reel-to-reel, crosses to his father's side. Davis appears, turn the vol- turn the, turns the volume up. A fiery gospel song fills the tent. Jamie grabs the wicker basket, starts them circulating, encourages the crowd. Corey kneels beside the elderly woman. She's unconscious. Her oldest son, Nathan, turns to Corey. She's barely breathing. Her pulse is weak. We, we got to get her outside. Can you help us, preacher? Corey is shaken. He nods. Then he and the woman's son lift her up and carry her away. <clears throat> Some in the crowd hesitate as Corey exit with the woman and her family. But Jamie and Davis take up the slack, keep the flock singing, the momentum moving. Lit by the blue hue of the tent near the one ton and the Deville, the elderly woman lies on the ground, comatose, surrounded by her worried family. Corey, Stephen, Helen, and now Jamie, who also just arrives, are also part of the circle around her. The two policemen, one fat, one tall, are here. Their squad cars parked nearby. They don't look happy. One of the other sons, Jacob, checks his mother's pulse, listens to her heart, her breathing. 
There is a frantic feeling in the air, fear mixed with shock, uh, mixed with the helplessness. Beyond them, the energy inside the tent continues, a rumble of unshakable faith. Please, God, no! Don't take her, Lord! Don't take her yet, not like this. We gotta get her to the hospital, Nathan. We got to go now. Follow us! Nathan nods as the third son, Walter, pulls up in a station wagon. Someone driving a sedan follows right behind the wagon. The policemen move to their cars, climb in, fire the engines. Let's get her in the car. Gentle now. Careful. Nathan, Jacob, and other family members lift the woman, carry her to the car, lay her down across the back seat. Corey and Stephen follow them to the station wagon, eyes up on the elderly woman who seems inches from death's door. Someone gets in beside the elderly woman, kneels on the floor by her head, holds her hand. Other family members fill the wagon front to back. Walter stands by the driver's side door, addresses Nathan over the car door. We'll see you at the hospital. Nathan nods. Jacob, his wife, and two children move the sedan. Get in, Jacob, behind the wheel. Other family members hurry off to their cars, also headed to the hospital. Stephen watches them go, profoundly moved by this turn of events, gripped by the emotion of the moment. Nathan turns to Corey, face to face. Come pray with us, preacher. My mother needs you. Pray with us at the hospital. Corey brings like a deer in headlights. Nowhere in his master plan did something like this ever arise. Davis appears at the back of the tent, gestures at Jamie, who, watching the cop cars, relays the message to Corey in a firm, almost demanding voice. We're passing the whisker, wicker baskets, preacher. You got to lead the flock in the closing hymn. It's time to tie it up in red ribbon. You can't go nowhere. Come on, please, preacher. The hymn, preacher. Them baskets need tending. For the first time since the start of summer, Corey is speechless. He's still in the grasp of the money, the power. But his eyes have lost focus. He looks from Nathan to Jamie to finally Helen, who is hanging in the balance, feeling for him, for the woman, deeply moved for the first time in a long time. Her voice is soft, emotional. Go to the hospital. Uh, I, I can't. Dad! What are you doing? Corey can't answer. They hold each other's eyes, and then Corey, dazed, is moved to the sedan, climbing in with Stephen. Jacob, his family, and Nathan. Nice. Jacob drives. His daughter sits beside him. Walter sits in the front passenger seat. In the back, Jacob's wife is directly behind her husband, beside her son, who sits next to Corey. Stephen is next to his father, right behind Walter. The red light from the police car in front of them flashes across their faces. Continuous. One police car pulls out, followed by the sedan, followed by the wagon, followed by the second police car. Jamie watches them go, looks at Helen, then hurries back to the tent. Helen watches the caravan disappear into the dark. All in a row, the caravan drives quickly to the hospital. Everyone in the car is silent. Corey looks blown away. He says softly to Walter, to all of them, to anyone. I'm sorry. Do not judge. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Amen. Amen. That's one of Mama's favorites, Luke 6.37. External New River Hospital. Later, Stephen sets on the hood of the sedan, which is parked beside the wagon near the emergency room entrance to this small community hospital. Corey leans against the car beside his son. Both of them look grim, sad, lost, confused. They say nothing for a long moment. Then... 
when you were laying on hands and that woman took her dress off and people were screaming and throwing money in the baskets. A, a man asked me if that was my daddy up there healing the sick. I didn't know whether to say he's not healing anybody or he's not my daddy. <laughs> She's ready, preacher. Private room, hospital, later. The woman is comatose. Tubes in her nose and mouth, IVs in her arms. <clears throat> a dozen family members, old and young, stand in close circles around the bed. Corey is at the foot of the bed. Stephen has a spot further down. Nathan hands Corey an old Bible, yellowed and dog-eared. I have to say, I love this scene. Mm. Who's, uh, who's playing Nathan right now? Uh, okay. You going to play Nathan? Um, everyone waits for Corey. Oh, I'm sorry. Nathan hands Corey an old Bible, yellowed and dog-eared, read, read thousands of times over the course of a long life. It's Mama's Bible. We were hoping you would read from it. Preacher? Preacher? Does she have a story she likes to hear? Prodigal son. She prodigal, likes it. prodigal. She likes how it ends when the young man comes home after living a life of sin and his brother won't forgive him, but his father will. She Corey, got it marked. Oh, I'm sorry. Corey looks again at the Bible, opens it, awkwardly turns the pages. A stranger in a strange land. One of the grandsons reaches for the Bible, offers to help. Corey hands the boy the book. He turns to the right verse, hands the Bible back to Corey. Can you imagine that scene? He's going... Holy shit, where in the fuck is this? <laughs> well, he's still dressed like an idiot. <laughs> Which is yeah. awesome. He turns to the right verse, hands the Bible back to Corey, who looks at the family, at Stephen, at the Bible, and then reads. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry, and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. Corey and Stephen sat at a wooden bench in a starkly lit New River Hospital hallway outside a row of private patient rooms. A wall clock reads 11.45 p.m. All around them, family members are stretched out on benches and on the floor, some asleep, others waiting. At the end of the hall, by the nurse's station, the two policemen confer, glancing at Corey, checking their watches. Nathan appears in the doorway of his mother's private room. He glances at Corey, walks down the hall, talks to the police, and then starts for Corey. At the same time, a door at the other end of the hall opens, and Jamie and Davis enter and spot the police at the moment the police spot them. There is an unspoken connection. The police don't know the Crips in particular, but they recognize the type. Nathan arrives at Corey, and Stephen smiles gratefully. She's awake, preacher. She's going to make it. God bless you. God bless. Drug and Caddy are outside. If we leave now, we can take the ranch road, 515 of the old Mabel Highway, and make it to Longwood in time to raise a tent. Plenty of prisoners in Longwood is what I heard, but we gotta go, Preacher, so this don't turn into something more than it is. Now, Preacher. Corey stands, and he, Stephen, Jamie, and Davis head down the hall and exit. The police stop at the door. 
West Texas, Tulane, Dawn. The DeVille and the one ton alone on the road as first light filters into the sky. Later, Corey, Stephen, Jamie, and Davis unload the truck. Corey is lost in thought, silent. He and Stephen trade glances as they work, but don't quite meet each other's eye. Later, the caddy and the truck, empty now, are parked outside their rooms at a motel. Stephen sleeps in the bed, exhausted in every way. Corey sits at the small table, reading the stolen motel Bible. He wears a tight, sleeveless t-shirt and blue jeans. He has the alligator skin cowboy boots on his feet up. A hole has been sanded in the bottom of the foot. After a moment, he closes the book and looks over at his son. He stands, crosses to the bed, sits beside Stephen, feeling something deep, something he can't express yet. External empty field, the blue tent, a big tent glows blue in a cattle field, cars and trucks shrouded in, uh, shrouded in shadows around it. A massive crowd overfills the tent, standing room only, standing room only, a supercharged, expecting nothing less than a miracle. Inside the tent, external to the tent, Corey holding a stolen motel Bible dressed in his silk suit, hair white and combed high as heaven, stands near the one tent with Stephen, Jamie, Davis, and Helen, all of them dressed for the performance, including crutches and broken, a bloody handkerchief. It's their pre-sermon ritual, but Corey is distracted, looking into the infinite darkness. It's going to be a big night. Best kind. Feeling the power of Jesus. Amen to that. You ready to feed the flock, preacher? Ready enough. Jamie and Davis get a charge out of that. They're ready enough, too. They start for the tent. Helen goes with them. Corey and Stephen follow. A gospel song fades up. Inside the tent, the flock vibrates with heavenly energy, some already standing, swaying to the gospel song, anticipating the arrival of the charismatic preacher. Stephen stands by the reel-to-reel, working the fader, eyes on the pulpit stage. Jamie Davis and and Helen sit among the flock as if they traveled miles to be healed. And then Corey takes the stage, stands behind the pulpit, opens the motel Bible for him. The flock nearly gasped with excitement. Corey hasn't said word one, and some are already calling, Amen, and praise the Lord. Stephen fades the music to zero, and Corey just stands there. The flock buzzes for him to start, but Corey says nothing, barely moves a muscle. It appears to be part of the show, so the flock offers their encouragement, letting the preacher know they're ready to find God and lend some. Finally, Corey raises a hand for silence, exposing a gold cufflink. They obey without question. He could lead them into a burning building with the hint of a gesture. And still he stands there, half the congregation on their feet, the tension building to where they can hardly contain themselves. But no one makes a sound until... Do you know what the Bible says? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I have become rich by stealing. I've become rich by stealing from you, taking money in the collections, healing when I knew nothing of what I was doing. I have been stealing your money. But worse than that, I've taken something more precious than money. I've been stealing your faith. The flocks look around for some kind of communal confirmation of what they're really hearing. Corey reaches behind him and lifts a straight back chair, 
that he'd put there earlier. He comes around the pulpit with the chair, puts it down at the front of the stage, directly in front of the pulpit, and stands behind it. I do not deserve to be up here. I do not deserve to take collections. I do not deserve anything and would not be surprised if you all got up and walked out right now. He waits for them to do it, expecting them to. The flock is stunned, unsure of its next move. And then some who have been standing set, then others set. Everyone sets. No one patricianer, parishioner leaves the... Uh, leaves the tent. Corey smiles gratefully, then removes his silk jacket, places it on the back of the chair, and takes his seat. He opens the Bible and addresses the flock. I want to talk about what it means to do right. I want to talk about what it means to be a good man, to live a good life. I just I, I hear music. I just want to talk. That's all. Bible says. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? I know something about that. That's something I can talk about. During this speech, he had met Stephen's eyes. It's their first heartfelt connection since the whole thing started. Corey, Stephen, Jamie, Davis, and Helen stand in front of the pulpit stage, back to the pulpit, staring out at the benches, which are not yet revealed to us. I saw it with my own eyes, and I still can't believe it. You didn't heal nobody. You didn't even pass them wicker baskets. You flat out told them you didn't want their money. And then nothing. Just looking at the benches, which are now revealed, and on every one from the first row to the very last row in the far reaches of the tent, little piles of money have been left where the parishioners were sitting. That has to be more than 2,000. Maybe 2,200. Well, let's find out. All the money goes to a local charity. You can take your cut, but the rest goes back. You were serious up there? Every word. You found God, did you? I don't know anything about God. Well, then what the hell, preacher? From now on, we pay our way. And everything else we give back. What about us? We could use help raising the tent. For no profit? Not a penny. Not a chance. Well, then? We'll call this traveling money... We'll be on our way. He lifts one wicker basket, hands it to Helen, takes the other for himself, and scoops the cash from the first bench into the basket. Helen does the same with the money on the benches on the far side of the tent. What do you think you're doing? Get out of my way, Davis. You go for it, preacher. Come on. Dad. No. Let him have it. We'll be heading on down to Dallas. Some guy did preaching the word by making animals talk. They say he can make a frog spout the gospel. Me, Davis, and Helen will help him. Don't know what you and the boy are going to do. Can't say that I care, neither. That's all there is, Davis. We'll be taking that basket, Helen. No, you won't. She stops behind Corey, beside Stephen, still holding the basket of money. Davis moves toward her, but this time Corey blocks his path, and he means it. Davis has to think twice. You're coming with us. We're going to Dallas. No, Jamie. No more. I'm not going with you. I'm done. You're all nuts. Come on, Davis. I said come on. You really did heal someone this time. We live in Shelton, about 300 miles from here, if you're ever going that way. We might be. They share another smile. Then she moves to Stephen, 
gently strokes his cheek. You see how the audience is being led into this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stephen holds her eye, and his attachment to her is clear and emotional. She walks away down the long center aisle. Corey calls after her. If we do, we'll need help raising the tent. Maybe you could bring the girls. Maybe I could. What do you mean we could use help with the tent? I was thinking we'd spend the rest of the summer making up for the first part. We're still going to preach? We'll drive around and raise the army tent, like when we first started, and talk about... Living a good life, being a, a good person. That's a kind of preaching, I guess. Giving the money back? Living on what we need, giving the rest back. The army tent? With all the holes. What about the new tent? We'll sell it. And the gold cufflinks. And we'll sell the caddy, too. And my bike. We, we could sell that. <laughs> if you want. So, you're staying with me? Are you staying with me? I'm not going you, anywhere. You understand that that in particular thing, if I were directing this right now, mm -hmm. this is a very emotional thing. Sure. Are you staying with me? I do. Are you staying with me? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So this, this is this is, this is is that father-son redemption. This is where it hits the peak. Go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, like I said, it's Cole Reed. I'm just, yeah. I don't know if he's still pissed or not. I can't tell. Oh, he's you pissed. Know. He's pissed. He's, Steven, well, he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He's yeah. Corey, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. But so I'll back up. Uh... Are you staying with me? I'm not going anywhere without you. Me too. And they hold each other in the glow of the tent in the middle of the night in an empty field in the flatlands of West Texas. External Army Tent Day. The Army Tent is set for a sermon on the edge of a town that's been beaten down by the sun for a hundred years. Stephen comes walking across the field toward the tent. He's got a few extra flyers he didn't get up. He wears his birthday Salvation Army Converse sneakers yeah. at the entrance to the tent, which he had at the very first of the film, uh, first of the script. At the entrance of the tent is a bench. On the bench is his baseball glove and his father's glove with a ball in it. Stephen arrives at the tent, stares at the gloves, <clears throat> sits on the bench, lays the flyers down, puts his glove on, takes the ball, pounds it into the pocket. Corey comes out of the tent. He wears blue jeans and a sleeveless T-shirt. His hair is brown again and brushed down, like almost anybody but a tent preacher. Did you leave these out here? I was waiting for you, then I got hot. You want to catch? You don't need white hair to preach? I'm thinking God don't care what color my hair is. That's what I'm thinking. You know what I found out? No. I found out you can't steal a Gideon Bible from a motel. They expect people to take them. When somebody takes one... They put a new one back where it was. They wanted us to have it is what I'm saying. We didn't steal it. Is that what you're saying? I, it took me a while, but I think sure? it was. <laughs> they wanted us to have they it. They want you to have it. Yeah. I needed a comma there to help yeah. me out. Still <laughs> a comma. Is what I'm The it and the is seem to go together, but they really do. Is what I'm saying. We didn't steal it. We were supposed to take it. That's good to know. Yes, it is. Stephen throws strike three. They've been playing catch for a while. I'm ready. Who are we playing? Atlanta. Uh, heart of the order. Aaron, Cardi, Cepeda. Stephen goes into his windup, fires at home, as father and son sets the Braves down in order. <laughs> Fade out. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Yay! <laughs> the actors applauded themselves. No, I'm applauding this goddamn story. It's really good, man.